0: A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today we finish Morningstar, Star, the last book in the Red Rising trilogy. So, you know, you should know all the fun spoilies, the fun turns that happen here. It uh before proceeding because there are definitely going to be some big big conversations going on. There, this is Cross.
1: And I'm PJ. Had to play and with we, that one a little bit. Wanted to be a little <laughs> bit
0: more fun. More fun. And we are <laughs> Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club.
1: Holy shit, is this going to be a messy one. So, if you'll remember at the beginning of Morningstar... Right before we started reading it, we decided, hey, let's put together a Deadpool and let's have, I don't know, 25 names on it. And, hmm, we can't remember now at this point if it was a quarter shot or a half shot for each of them, but 18 of those come to fruition today because it's the end of the book. Oh my God. It's also Monday for anybody wondering when we record. We record fucking Monday.
0: Yeah, so after like the already, oh my God, it's a Monday thing, you know, the the Monday drain, brain drain day. That's
1: not my problem. My problem is I've got four more days of work and school ahead of me and I'm drinking heavily on a Monday.
0: That's also true. That's, (laughs) That's a fair point. (laughs) <laughs> um, it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Like you said, it's gonna be a whole thing. So, this episode is going to be structured ever so slightly different, but we'll talk about that in a little a little bit here. Today is our ninth episode covering Morningstar by Pierce Brown, and we're here to discuss that end. We start on chapter 60 and roll right through the epilogue, wrapping up the trilogy. It's a, It's been a hell of a ride. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it has.
1: It's been... <laughs> twists and turns at every every stop so
0: yeah it's been fun i i think before we go to what we're drinking you know just like what what are some brief thoughts that you have on uh you know the book the series how how do you feel did you was it a good good use of time oh yeah great use of time so much
1: uh, so much fun to to read and so much fun equally to listen to with uh with the audiobooks that are amazingly done I'm just bitter. I'm bitter about how optimistic Darrow is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> at at the end of this, you mean? Yeah, yeah. That's that's funny and interesting to anyone who's read further than you. So, <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's good. So today is our ninth episode. Obviously. I've already said that. What am I doing? First, let's talk about what we're drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even drank anything yet. What is this? Oh, uh, we are in for a tough one, folks. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, PJ, what are your, what are I'll, we explain what we're doing?
1: All I have written here is lots of shots. <laughs> um, so, we decided we couldn't remember if it was a quarter shot for each person or a half shot for each person, and we went through the Deadpool And spoiler alert, both of us got nine
0: of them right of the 18 that come to fruition here. Well, let's let's correct you a little bit. You got nine right and nine wrong. Yeah. Which means for each one that you got right, I take a shot for each one you got wrong. You well, not take a full shot, but, you know, take a chunk, take
1: a chunk. So instead, because it's it's 18 of them divisible by three, we did a third of a shot each. Hopefully that's acceptable to you guys. It means that each of us take three shots. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we decided to sort of coordinate it and do three of the same, but Crossland fucked up, but he'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> um, so the shots that we chose were the first one's going to be just straight tequila with a lime wedge. Second one is going to be a lemon drop turned into a shot. So vodka, lemon juice, and simple syrup. And then the third one is going to be a mint julep version of a shot. Um, So that's just going to be sugar and mint and bourbon over ice. Yeah. And Crossland, would you, I I did those (laughs) as I stated. Crossland, would you explain Uh, what you've done?
0: (laughs) Well, I do have a tequila shot with a lime wedge, okay. you did that one right um, th- <laughs> that's correct yeah my my brain got mixed up when I was mixing these, so I was doing a little bit of prep before the show, just kind of getting everything ready that way I could just throw the cocktails together, so they'd be cold and like enjoyable right when we like start and whatnot so i I got everything together. I put all the ingredients separately for some reason i juiced two limes in addition to the lemon for the lemon drop i then misplaced the lemon and the lime and instead of making a lemon drop made a lime drop and then my mint julep isn't really a mint julep because it's got a little bit of vodka in it and it's got (laughs) bourbon and it's got lemon i tasted it i must have poured some vodka in there on accident i think i did the lemon drop correctly but then poured the bourbon in not paying attention to which vessel I was pouring into. So it's it's crazy. <laughs> Does it but, still have uh, mint? Yeah, it's still got mint. Okay. <laughs> it's 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 wild. Um
1: Yeah. It's stupid it's, is what it is.
0: It's gonna be a um, whole thing. But the the other thing that I fine, have though. here yeah it it actually i i've already tried it it tastes it tastes okay but the other thing that i have here to follow that up you know normally we do beer normally we do something else we knew that this was going to be intense so i made a larger mint julep of course but then instead of a beer today i have a little bottle of champagne for our first trilogy <laughs> interesting yeah so to uh to celebrate got some champagne to uh to do for this one so I, got you myself should have a little told tiny. me i would have done it too I uh, I didn't think about it until the last second. So you just had dad.
1: champagne and decided, Oh, this would be a good celebration.
0: Not- that's that's not actually true. <laughs> it was I, even worse. I bought than the that? champagne, yes. I, I bought the champagne for some other form of mixed drink and then looked at it in the fridge and decided that's a really good idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So like I said, technically worse, but
1: Yeah. My so- Cheers. Mine's not what a are follow you up. up with. It's not quite a follow up. It's just going to be like what I'm sipping on throughout because I think we're going to plan on taking the tequila right away and then kind of interspersing the other two. Right. Unless you want to take all of them right away, which I don't. But
0: no, no, I think that that's a bad idea, especially given I, the I various various nature of my lime drop and my <laughs> not mint julep. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think but, the game plan. What are, what are you sipping on first? Uh, Sorry. Moon Man from New Glarus, which is OK. If
1: anybody is familiar with the Midwest, they know Wisconsin. And if you know Wisconsin, you know, New Glarus. They are, I think, like the fourth biggest craft brewery in the country. And they're
0: only sold in Wisconsin. That's kind of nuts. Yeah. So they're actually Milwaukee's best. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But <laughs> Not, of, not literally. Glarus, but not Milwaukee. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, true. True. That's that's super funny. And also uh i've had what's what's their faint spotted cow spotted right cow is the mm-hmm. big one yeah, yeah. spotted cow's the big one which is a good beer it's fine yeah it, right like the it's best. nothing I mean, to write it, home again it, there's
1: but. nothing wrong with it at all mm-hmm. and it's good yeah but it's a it's a boring style that does not speak volumes to anything anyway yeah oh sorry sorry to rip <laughs> on that a little bit i do like new glaris like they they put out solid stuff
0: mm-hmm. oh mm-hmm. for sure so to explain what we're going to do with the shots like I said this episode's going to be a t- smidge different because we've got the Deadpool and whatnot here so we're going to go through the Deadpool right away like PJ said we decided that for every three characters we split it perfectly evenly somehow good work PJ. Um, so we're each going to be taking the three shots. We're going to do one right at the end of the Deadpool. PJ is still going to drink for the predictions per usual. Mm-hmm. But then in between chapters, uh, not in between each chapter, but every two chapters, we're going to take the other shots. So that'll be how it works. OK, with that, let's get into the Deadpool and take our first shot, the tequila shot.
1: So starting with the shot, then the Deadpool. Yes. Have we got a little test tube. That actually held a cigar at one point, but I, I only had one shot glass because I don't take <laughs> shots very often and that held my lemon drop. So I poured tequila into this thing.
0: I've got a bunch of graduated cylinder uh, <laughs> shot glasses. Perfect. That are actually. Lab oh, the grade. beaker ones, right? Yeah. The beakers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The 50 milliliter beakers.
0: Yeah. the The little. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Those I also cool. have graduated cylinders, but like all of that is in my same cabinet. <laughs> so I just grabbed the beakers. Nice. Um, but yeah, so I've got a lineup, lineup of beakers. I took a photo of it. Should we'll, we'll throw these on Instagram side by side. It'll be mine. Cool. Mine is uh, already on yours. Friend. Looks way better. Oh I, yeah. You already posted it. I posted it saying the Reaper is coming from my liver. True. <laughs> Cause it is. So with that, cheers for the first tequila shot. Cheers. Ha
1: uh-huh. I'm just glad I got good tequila.
0: I did too. And for some reason, I think it just hit my mouth. Weird. My fault. I'm bad. Uh, just going to enjoy some of that sweet champagne. Take the take the victory lap. Okay. PJ's Deadpool. So we are going to run through as well each of the characters and the predictions, including the ones that we've already talked about. So right off the bat, the first one that we talked about was Ragnar, and he is dead, and you said he died in an inspirational way, which I think he did. I think yeah. We, and I've you know? I have already drinking for that. Like Yep. Yep. For sure. Um you read the other bold ones. Uh, all right. I said Deanna, Darrow's mom,
1: would be dead she is not i said harmony would be dead she is not hypothetically but we don't know that for sure but i mm, i think she ran
0: off the ship at the end
1: yeah i think so dancer dead he gonna die no he's fine
0: so then we get the other colors that you predicted. You said Evie was going to be alive and will she'll be brought back into line with the Sons of Ares. She is alive. Quicksilver is also alive. He, of course, you know, was far more important than originally anticipated going into this book. Kieran, also alive. And more importantly, you said as well, he climbs into high rank high level ranks with Darrow. And not not strictly true, but we're not holding it to that. That was just kind of a guess. So mm with that we go to the golds uh so this one
1: there's a couple of them
0: that we decided to just
1: kind of push on other howlers being one of them less than 50 percent of them
0: survive so that was the group of cr- ugh, screw face clown and whatnot thistle e- included Rob you know back. kind of everyone thrown in we just decided to push because you know not everything's talked about so cleanly yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty inexplicit Yep, so we pushed on that one. Moira, who you said was going to be alive, died, and you did drink for that way back when, so mm-hmm. that one's taken care of. Aja, you said, was going to die. She was too much of a threat and too entrenched in her stance to support Octavia versus anyone else, and you were very correct there. That was a very good read, yeah, without a doubt. The next one that we decided to push was actually Lilath, because the... The ship dies an ignoble death, but like there's nothing to say that they found anything. So we just decided to push.
1: We decided to push because there's so much bullshit and people surviving. <laughs>
0: and we don't know if she survived or not. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> it's uh it's funny for sure. So uh Daxo is you said that he was going to live, and he does, almost like a rogue role, and I think. To some degree, he's, you know, a big deal with Mustang. So I would say he's kind of like Mustangs broke or I like best that, friend.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, I said that Cavex would be brain dead and would be physically alive, which she is. <laughs> I'll make a note of it. <laughs> some sort of concussion. And uh, I can only say one word, which I think I said would be jelly beans. Right. Which is two words. It's wrong. <laughs> he is alive and i said he'd be alive but crossland
0: bolded this which means i'm wrong because you said brain dead <laughs> which is gratuitously ridiculous <laughs> you know i i definitely understand this is actually something i got i got i got a message about this on uh on instagram and really? oh yeah which is like you you guys don't give cabex enough credit and i'm like no i have to indulge pj until we get to the end of oh. something and then i can like go back and correct it a little bit i love cavax um, just oh, yeah. for
1: the record I, he is my favorite character i just yeah. really like kind of boiling him down to a, a crazy old man who loves his fox <laughs> he is he is an amazing character but yeah. i i do really like focusing on that aspect of him
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's perfect it's fantastic and i definitely appreciate it they also understood and you know thought thought similarly they're like they noted that and i definitely also defended you in that way uh okay. <laughs> but yeah that was that was from uh one of our very long-time listeners who's been with us since the first couple of episodes so definitely definitely just wanted to call that out uh so with that we move on to sophocles who you said would be alive which yeah you're correct runs off the ship right at the end okay uh you said that sophocles was going to have children which i didn't hold you accountable to and i asked did clones count you said no but okay you know so just, i guess
1: not holding me accountable to that is fair a fair trade-off with the Cavax thing
0: it was it was a dead pool you know like it's <laughs> yeah it's it's fine it's it's about whether or not they're alive or dead and Brain dead was an interesting call, which is the only reason that that one got bold. Bolder. Okay. Fair. Um, Cassius is alive and you literally predicted like the plot, right? <laughs> like you called out what was going to happen with Darrow at the beginning of this fucking book. You said, potentially the blood feud is dropped and that Darrow and Cassius will work together in the end. And you forgot your fucking prediction. I man. always forget my fucking prediction,
1: man. <laughs> I didn't remember saying that in the slightest, and I was really
0: upset when it happened. (laughs) Uh, That's that's so funny, man. Oh, God. Yeah. Cassius, Cassius, Cassius.
1: I'm not smart, but I get things
0: right sometimes. (laughs) You're you're doing fine. You're doing fine. All right. Uh, Next ones are yours. Adrius alive. He's not. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the jackal does not live octavia dead early in the book i said early in the book correct is correct. That why so that's ha- why th- that's why you yes. have this bold yes
0: because she's while dead you as say a doornail dead. she is a dead old woman <laughs> right but you were very specific that there was going to be like a power vacuum yeah and so right. i think that this was this was another one where i was like yeah you're right on the call but you're so so off on the reason yeah so fair enough that was that was one that i swung mm-hmm. so roke is dead you said darrow is sad but you know it's a cold-blooded thing darrow gives him a chance but he refuses like ragnar and the gold does you know like the exchange between ragnar and the gold and golden sun you know saying that he had the option to quit and then gets murdered because he double checks with society which yeah basically but instead roke kills himself instead of being executed or anything like that tried for war crimes
1: right you already trained so. for that one right
0: Yes, yeah, I did drink for that one. Yep. So, something Crossland drank for. Knowing full <laughs> well he
1: didn't actually have to drink for it. Uh, Severo, dead. Yep. Hard on Darrow because it's the decision that Darrow makes that kills him. That was right. That was perfectly right until, like, a chapter later.
0: Yeah, I can't suddenly. tell you so how how much i just sat there and i was like all right i'm gonna take this shot tonight and then pj is gonna do two next week because i'm i'm taking this so as to not spoil the story yep so uh, uh that's that's
1: good on you good on you for that i do appreciate yep. i do appreciate so, uh, that
0: it's it's good it's good we also have one of those in your regular predictions here too it's funny
1: uh mustang dead i don't think she makes it into morning star Okay.
0: (laughs) That's wrong. Uh Antonia alive. Too slimy to die. Also wrong. And the final prediction is that Darrow ends up alive at the end of the book series where everyone's been trying to kill him, Mm
1: -hmm. which is correct. I think that was a tough one. That was honestly a tough
0: one. Yeah, you sat there and waited for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you landed on alive because you're like, he's the protagonist, he has plot armor, he'll survive.
1: Yeah, pretty much. But I also knew that the next series is technically a different or the next book is technically part of a different trilogy, according to Mm -hmm. people. So I was conflicted and confused.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So with that, we move out of the Deadpool, which was a great fun time. We'll see if we do that again at some point in the future. Uh, And we will move into the regular predictions so I want to bring this up from last week again I asked what's happening with Cassius you said Darrow is going to really wish he hadn't kept Cassius alive and I drank for it and I think in the end Darrow is really happy that Cassius sided with him after showing him evidence so I think you owe me one Yeah, but I drank for it because I wasn't going to ruin it You,
1: you are what you do to your liver is thankless and I love
0: you for it <laughs> the pain that i put you through poor little boy (laughs) all right Uh. Um, the next one, the Jekyll still has all those nukes. And you responded, is this a question? Yes, he does. Prediction cemented. Of which, yeah, I'll drink for. Fine. <laughs> uh, but you're drinking for the next prediction, which also related to the nukes, which is, what's the Jackal most likely to do with the big bombas? And you
1: said, So unrest by seeding bombs into the hands of the Red Legion. And when he finally has the majority of the Helium-3, he can and plans to take everything under threat of annihilation. He doesn't even need to use them. It's wrong, which but it is partially right. You, you are so close. I was focusing on the helium three part because they focused mm-hmm. on the helium three part.
0: Yeah, there, there was you. You had a focus because of the like economic impact, which I think is it's interesting. And I think it's also like a really good, really well. the thing is, I genuinely this universe believe is so well that was probably that that's possible.
1: a contingency plan. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he had totally. that in the works, too. But Yep.
0: I, I don't disagree at all. And in I think big, the fact that you're you you wrong, stretch. though. So I'm
1: going to go ahead and take a drink.
0: Correct. You should. I, I think that what's really interesting <laughs> about that prediction, I, dude, I, I stand by that prediction for you because I think that this series lends itself to actually such a wide berth of possibilities because all of the different things that Pierce has written and pulled in that an economic standoff. Makes a lot of sense. An economic nuclear standoff makes a lot of sense textually. Oh, yeah. So, it's not that far off. I mean, from from a very real possibility. So, it was a great prediction. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so, what's going on with Mustang, huh? The whole Cavax, Daxo, Deanna thing? You said? Uh, some sort of arranged marriage.
1: Mustang has no father but was raised by Kavax, so he is her de facto father. They're joining their families. Deanna is ultimately going to usurp power. She is the true big bad endgame.
0: Which is, I mean, like the Deanna thing is obviously a good joke there. that's a good (laughs) good move. Um, But I, I think the rest of it, you actually have like a decent read on the situation. But that wasn't it. It was, in fact, all about their secret child yeah yep
1: yeah. which yeah. i i feel like i had the spirit of the answer correct yes i still but think i will say anna is going to usurp power i think she is going to become unworldly powerful and uh <laughs> evil evil perhaps evil evil red lady
0: diana De- the core of the story <laughs> um of course. so the final this i drink this was, for that, by the way you do definitely drink for that super super duper wrong the final prediction, which is really funny, because you added it as a joke, right? <laughs> this was after the second episode, and you added this one as a joke to to the thing, and you're like, I wonder if we'll ever know. And the the prediction was gold or red spermies. And you said gold ween, but red wigglers. um, Which,
1: it's still kind of a mystery. Yeah. A bit. Because we know a little bit about the way the carving happens with like inner color um, spawning, I guess. Yeah, and with, with like Brynn
0: need... in particular. Right, mm-hmm. that's the only example that we really have. With who? Brynn, the yeah. wife so she, of Fisher. She
1: needed to have her her womb carved. So I don't know if it actually answers anything. We don't know how it goes the other way around. We don't know if red sperm can impregnate gold wombs. Or if Darrow was carved into uh to have gold testicles.
0: Right. Right. I think that that's that's the really weird, interesting question. And I think that <laughs> it's not, that that is something of a question. I <laughs> think I think it, it kind of is. And I think it it's is. something that could be answered and explored in, uh, you know, maybe but a follow up it, trilogy.
1: Do you think it ever will be? I don't think so.
0: I think you can get the answer without if, going into the testes fully. You I know? think like, I think
1: Pierce Brown should write a Silmarillion Esque, just dude people are begging for that
0: i think people are i think begging go for well. that. people especially want the conquering like especially want the conquering yeah
1: i i'm thinking i guess that would be more on, more in line with the simarillion but I, i'm thinking more just a dissertation of the medical science behind the physical differences in the different colors mm-hmm. yeah i think that'd be I, really interesting
0: i haven't yet read the prequel comics but you have to imagine with the general theme of it being surrounding, you know, Fitchner as Ares, that that'll that'll line up a little bit. At the very least, there will be a little bit of an explanation. It's not going to be full, but we will probably get a better picture of Brent and whatnot. In right. That story. And I,
1: I, I think we get a good enough picture of that. But that is the opposite direction of where we're going. Mm-hmm. That is gold male to red female as opposed to red male to gold female, which. R- it, right it, that that's a sort of crude way to boil
0: it down but that's biology and how it fucking works right the, the other the other part of this that i think is interesting enough to mention is how do you think um this is you know speculation before we jump into the breakdown in chapters but in a similar way what do you think about Severo and victra and like what their children would look like because Severo is actually like a hybrid. He, hybrid quote. He's a huge. He's just person, but he's a red and gold hybrid.
1: Um, red and gold hybrid, yes. But I think more gold than anything. We know that. We know that his his bone structure is that of a gold. Right, but he's super short. Yeah, he's fucking short. I mean, what of it?
0: Like uncommonly short because he's red.
1: Yeah. Um. I don't know. I think it'll be probably a slightly smaller than average gold. Their, their their spawn but okay
0: I don't think it'll be crazy i'll I'll take it I'll take it I think that's good I think it's good so I'm taking
1: this off of like I'm taking dungeons and dragons lore into into account here with like humans and elves and half elves mm-hmm. and I believe when you go like half elf to human they are considered human with some elvish features but yeah and, and the other way around half elf to elf, I think is characteristically full elf with some human like features. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it entirely that way, which that is a tabletop game written by people in the 1970s. Um, it is not the way things necessarily work, but that's how I'm deciding it works in this world.
0: Head cannon. So. <laughs> <coughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's that's really cool. So with that, let's go into our breakdown. So we start at chapter 60, Dragon's Maw. I I have to, on a meta level, clarify that for a lot of people, this is a very difficult to imagine chapter. It feels like there isn't a whole lot of description in so much as the fact that this is a bunker that has a grav lift that brings to there, to the bunker, that, that's referred to as the Dragon's Maw. And there's just kind of a lot of swirling questions about, like, what actually is this? What's the room look like? And how how, how does it work? There's how does it a look?
1: a pyramid that, like, breaks in half and moves with pistons and gears. Like yeah pyramid door i didn't understand any of it but i had the term grav lift and i ran with that and thought all right this is a
0: thing from halo (laughs) you jump (laughs) on it and it pushes you forward and and kind of kind of i mean grav lift gives me more like a you know elevator without without like the strings necessarily yeah right or without the strings is not the right fucking word but the cables you you know the cables yeah the steel cables um (laughs) doing all the all the lifting and counterweights and everything else it's just basically a cableless elevator is the way that i thought about it the
1: elevator strings
0: (laughs) fuck me um yeah so the 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 important thing though that i think to get in everyone's head is when they actually get into the room post the maw it reminds me of the you know, the like Senate scenes and Revenge of the Sith with like the floating platforms and everything and Clone Wars and whatnot. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So if you look at like the very bottom of that image um, of any of those images, you can kind of see this like lower sunken ring below the room. And I just imagine that like sunken ring lined with holographic projections of all of the different uh, praetors and people that are reporting to Octavia. That's what that reminds me of once okay. we actually get into the room. So it's below kind of the ground level. They're projecting above her and she's kind of looking up at them, which I find also interesting because like, why would you look up at them as like a authority figure? But who knows?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I didn't get any real tangible visualization off
0: the description. So that it is. It is definitely one of the only solid points of criticism that I really have is like this takes rereading and rereading and rereading to kind of construct the image but moving on now that we've kind of addressed the initial controversy of the dragon's maw there are a lot of little things that are also captured in the scene that aren't the set dressing right that compose kind of the picture adrius is here lurking in the background in his usual fashion but it doesn't feel like he should be there he kind of leaves a, a sense of unease and tension over the entire thing precious young lysander is here the uh, great-grandchild of Lorne and a grandchild, just grandchild of Lorne and Octavia. loon The way you say that makes it sound like sound like they're together, which it's not. It's two separate sides of the family. Correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. As much as I want that to be true.
0: True aja is here as well of course the morning knight cassius is jeered on by the truth knight and the joy knight so we get two more knights added and we actually kind of interact with them we don't really know their names but we we see them and they're here darrow's clearly down on the ground but he's assessing the room constantly taking in all these different threats it's it's interesting in post and maybe the first time that you read this did you pick up on cassius's acting in the scene his responses, trying to like get people to leave the room and ensure that he stayed, you know, he wasn't going to go shower off the blood or anything like that. Only after reading
1: it and then listening to it did I catch that. So my first read through, no, didn't didn't catch anything like that. Didn't give any impressions of it. So you thought he was still
0: a scumbag? Yeah. Got it. Absolutely. <laughs> like as As you should, as you should. I think it's really eloquently done. It's really well done. But there are a whole lot of
1: hints and a whole lot of really cool... Well done, subtle things after having read the whole thing and going back and re in my case, listening to it, which I think I've talked about this before, but that's what I tend to do is I read through it and then I listen to the audiobook. book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I think really works well for.
0: I, I think it works well for for a number of reasons. The double pass. I think that in a, in a unique way that is unique to this series not fully unique but Tim Gerard Reynolds does such a phenomenal job here that I mean we've we've jerked this guy off every single episode <laughs> I but love he It's he so such a good job good it's so good it's so good it got me through the entire first trilogy and like yeah it, i mean just absolutely phenomenal so great work again Tim Gerard Reynolds uh, a final Victory Lab for you on our uh, our trilogy wrap up here. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. He does a great job. He doesn't like what's what's nice about his voiceover specific to Cassius is he doesn't make it suspicious for sure. like he, I yeah. listened to it the first no, time there. yeah, he doesn't he doesn't make it suspicious or like seem like Cassius might be acting because that's the that's the like touch that you could lend in an audiobook, right? Is like you can lend and make it feel like more urgent or rushed and like kind of stutter through it to make it feel, you know, like he's having difficulty parsing it, but mm-hmm. Cassius is definitely in it at this point. He's uh right. He's he's cited. Yeah, I man. I I thought it was really well well executed. So extremely. We go on from there and we go to the execution of Antonia. Oh, did you have anything else to say about anyone else in the room at this point? Ah, uh, not really. I was pretty okay. pretty focused
1: on Darrow and uh, Cassius.
0: Okay, fair, fair. So we move on from there to the execution of Antonia, and my God, what a beautiful moment of payoff! Like, just perfect on a storytelling level. Mm. That she gets to sit here and squirm like a fucking worm as Octavia puts the pressure and basically calls her out for losing the battle so that Darrow could even be here in the first place. That it's literally her fault and she gets called out. And it's so it it goes it escalates to the point, of course, where (coughs) Adrias in the previous chapter, Darrow internally had monologued for Adrias and was like, she's just a sack of meat to him. And she and he basically treats her that way, saying, I'd have the loyalty of a dog than that of a coward. And boy, oh boy, (laughs) does that just fucking sting? Oh,
1: yeah, it does. Yeah, it does.
0: And then fucking Aja, just like at, at the whim of the whim of Octavia, grabs her from around the back of the neck and chokes her from behind, strangles her for a bit. And then snaps her neck and just fucking throws her across the room like a wet napkin onto Severo's corpse.
1: Yeah, onto Severo's corpse. So I made a little bit of a, like, disagreement noise with you when you're talking about how perfect it was. And that's because I think it should have lasted longer. I think she should have suffered more.
0: (laughs) You know, Leah should have never cut her down. Well, of course not. It was Leah, right? Leah cut her down? thistle 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 yes thistle should have never cut her down I was like she killed Leah what am I thinking yeah 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 I I agree with you she she could have hung longer
1: yeah she could have she could have seen seen how things worked out
0: I don't know hang her mm-hmm. by her toes yeah w- without a doubt deserved but now now that the uh, the trash has been disposed of the meat bag it's time to deal with the red. And I love I love that, like phrasing even of like it's time to deal with the red. And they're like they they just already are demeaning directly to him. It's, you know, his it's, it's a pronoun to describe him and everything else. It's his call cast sign. And. Yeah, it feels obvious, but because it's been so well, like built inside the world, it, it feels like a I don't know, a demeaning declaration. It's the power in the room.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is what he is, but they are trying to use it in a
0: demeaning way. Yeah, you said yeah. it right. You said it properly. So we move into chapter 61, the red. And I, I really like the first line that Darrow gets to actually say inside of the room, right? They, they pull the muzzle off of him and he says, Octavia says, imagine a world without the arrogance of the young. He immediately replies, imagine a world without the greed of the old. And this does feel like a very like generational grind that happens even that's happening even today is the generations reflect on each other, their choices, their sacrifices. The wisdom of the old, of course, is that they've they've done so many things and they understand. Um, But it's also a a reflection of the choice of society to be so complacent in, in the rights of humanity and things like that. It's it is only something that you can get away with. Like if you're writing a novel, from my perspective, you might start like, oh, I want to make this a general. My general approach to this idea is going to be something that is representative of class struggle and a bad writer would be tempted to put a line like this in the first 50 pages (laughs) A good writer knows that you have to build the world, build the environment, build everything else, and then pay it off at the end and say what you really wanted to kind of say about the whole thing. And kind of you can do it directly because you built the world to say this thing.
1: I think I think the more poetic part of this is that after this quote, within a couple dozen pages, if that we uh, we kind of get the 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 proper perspective of the sovereign where it really doesn't seem like she's acting out of greed. Correct. She seems, she seems to be genuinely out acting out of what she believes is the best for
0: the majority of society. I, I agree with that perspective, right? So I, I agree if we take it from Octavia, right? But if we take the, the lens from Old gold probably have this general sentiment. Imagine a world without the arrogance of the young thinking about the rebels and things like that that exist and the people who side the golds, even who side with the Democrats. Right. And imagine a world without the greed of the old, like saying that back to the golds. A lot of the golds are going to be are really just like greedy nobility in a feudal society. Right. That's where they're at right now from from a society perspective right i agree with you though on the side of octavia she doesn't fully side that way so darrow doesn't have a full picture of octavia even yet she's she's got depth to her in her last moments yeah, which is crazy certainly. for an arch villain
1: yeah but we didn't seem to have a whole lot of a read on her in general we were always kind of dealing with her proxies in
0: mm-hmm.
1: in aja and
0: moira yeah well whoever yeah and cassius and and whatnot yeah right moira was dispatched pretty quickly yeah we met her and then she died we we met her in one book and then she died in the next (laughs) we barely met her in that book though like yeah true all of our
1: interaction with with the exception of a single introduction was in the scene where she died (laughs)
0: Right, she she sells out Pliny in Golden Sun, which is really all she does. She gets introduced, she sells out Pliny, walks out of the scene, all within like two pages, and then she shows up in Golden Sun. We see her again, and Morning she Star. gets murdered. Morningstar, <laughs> Morningstar, sorry, we see her in Morningstar, and she she gets baked by the by the gun. Yep, yeah, it's a womp, uh, womp. womp womp for Moira. Not really though. She's a piece of trip. So <laughs> we. This is a quote, of course. We executed a puppet last time and the worlds know it. This is flesh and blood, the red who rose. I want them to know it is he who falls. I want them to know that even their best is insignificant. And that's Octavia. Jackal responds saying, give him words and he'll just make another slogan in a kind of off-putting way. And I can't help but kind of agree with him. You know, I completely how how did they actually like plan on proving it's not another double? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I I think that they. Like the the answer is maybe like letting him talk. And like speak to the cameras and things like that, it proves it. And it's not like he's a hydra. It's not like he's going to sprout another head, you know, uh, it's not going to. But the Suns did a pretty good
1: job of rallying behind him last time they saw him executed didn't they like no they it wasn't entirely smooth but they were putting up a fight and yeah putting up a fight and losing yeah right but but as opposed to just going underground you know like at least they were fighting
0: Mm -hmm. and and that's not to say that the rising isn't fighting right now but i think the fact of the matter is is like victra knows that he's been captured and that it's definitely him. Yeah. And because there's no there's no like time gap like there was between the triumph and the execution. It's it's hard to fake. There's an immediacy of the battle of Luna and having the enemy leader and executing him. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. If, it's uh but like yeah, kind of I think it's fair for them to talk about in general, right? Like it's it's actually good on peers to be like, how do people know that we aren't bullshitting? Well, because there's no way that we would be bullshitting this time because that would be ridiculous. People already don't trust us. We need to like call this thing, so we're going to call it for real. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Though, what if they just did do it again?
1: Like using that same logic, nobody would believe we'd do a fake again
0: that's also true it's that's that's interesting they could definitely they could probably pull it off but i think that that's not something that the jackal is interested in and he's no, the like power player in the, in the room just killing
1: darrow but it, it's a matter no, right of right how do you convince the masses after having been well to fraudulently fraudulently executed him once how do you convince them undoubtedly that this is actually the reaper
0: yeah. And I think the trick there to what you're saying is simply part of it is that they know that they're going to smash the Sons of Ares, that the fleet is like atta- the fleet that is attacking Luna, which includes all of their leadership, all of the leadership of the Sons of Ares Sands, Quicksilver. So, you know, that it's not necessarily like Octavia doesn't necessarily know that Lysander doesn't, but they're able to take this gambit. It's like being in the emperor's chambers, right? Like no one really knows that Luke's there, outside of the people who know Luke. But it's it's like the opposite where instead we're seeing cameras pointed in at the scene and I mean, they have to, you know, everyone I, sees this moment.
1: I hadn't thought about this, but honestly, what I think the smartest move would have been is to not broadcast it at all and use presuming that Cassius was on their side, use Cassius's knowledge of where the fleet is and where he was held and who was there to send in some sort of infiltration into the leadership and rot the Sons of Ares out from the inside, having secretly executed Darrow. That could have worked.
0: That's that's interesting.
1: That, I, I think, think that would have tactically been,
0: been the, the most important. Or the, the best I think way to deal with it. Octavia is also under the gun, though. Right? Oh, entirely. Like... Yeah. yeah. She, like is, she doesn't... She doesn't have time. <laughs> right. Right. She doesn't have time or really the luxury of choice. So... Right. She, um, she moves on and she rolls through a long, elegant speech about the grandiose claims that golds have above all other colors as the shepherds. The shepherds of humanity. But I couldn't help but think this time that shepherds lead sheep and darrow is a howler and the howlers wear wolf cloaks and it it just kind of it speaks to like it's just a nice little metaphor that's tucked in there right underneath the surface inside of that speech moving into kind of the outro and he is he has forever been the wolf in sheep's clothing living among them Until it was revealed in Golden Sun and it's just so well executed as a metaphor throughout the entire series that, you know, there's this sheep like following of the caste system, even though it's not helpful. And uh, it takes it takes the wolves to liberate the sheep
1: entirely. I think within that section, though, there's a lot of doublespeak and a lot of careful wording that who she's addressing is kind of under question. Clearly it's Darrow, but it is, is it also the Jackal?
0: I I think I really agree with you. So I you, you threw this note in our outline, and I went back and I, I reread it. And as you comb through, it almost reads as though she's addressing both Darrow and the Jackal, as, as if it was some kind of future speech of preservation of her decision-making that might stem from this moment, right? As though... It might be read there. So Uh, let's let's read
1: read some of them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, I got I got this. So this man once a noble servant of you of your families should have been the brightest son of his color. He was lifted up as a youth awarded merits of honor, but he chose vanity. To extend his own ego across the stars to become a conqueror. He forgot his duty, he forgot the reason for order, and has fallen into darkness, dragging the worlds with him. And with the knowledge that the Jackal has all these nukes pointed at Octavia to take over society, this reads like a like a speech that you would give right before a coup, as well as a speech for the execution of Darrow. Yeah. And I think it was intended to be both. There are two coups going on right now, you know, like (laughs) actively at the same time. It's um exactly it's well written. It's well written. And it continues from there, too. Of course, they talk. She reaffirms the power of the pyramid, which is obviously more directly addressing Darrow. But even the rest of that speech still points to the fact that he the person was awarded by society and by like living inside of this This bubble, this cast, they were able to excel and do well. And so just the the amount of like disrespect for the system deserves to be executed. And man, man is that it's it's good. Oh yeah, very good. So we we run through this adrenaline pumping moment. Darrow is obviously psyching himself up while she's talking because he knows what's going on. And he's reflecting on the carnus line that we talked about last week, that shout into the wind. And he says inside, he says, but I want no shout. Let that be for a rogue. Let that be for the golds. Give me something more, something they cannot understand. Give me the rage of my people, the wrath of all people in bondage. And then he throws back his head and he howls in the room like a fucking wolf. Mm -hmm. And boy, fucking chills. Yeah. 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 Every time.
1: And um, clearly, that's also a like knowing, knowing now, knowing what we know after the fact. Like that is the the declaration of we're going. Like let's do this shit. Mm-hmm. But also, that's
0: just a fucking powerful statement to be made. Yeah, I mean, it's what's so interesting is that it's actually a smaller group of people that it's referencing like it's only the howlers that are really the ones who howl and do the whole like a woo thing and you know they're they're the people that follow Severo and darrow the elite squad and it's also that symbol that you're talking about so it's interesting that he does that on camera um and kind of really hones it in as the the rallying cry the symbol and also like the title of the next chapter right omnisphere lupus and kind of I don't know. It's 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 an interesting intersection of uh, of metaphors that have lingered around the series. Mm-hmm. And I, I it does
1: strictly relate to the howlers, but I, I feel like they've used howling as a rallying cry for the Reds in general before, haven't they? Or for the Suns? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, for the Suns in general. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also like the idea that he he rejects Karnas's statement about the shout under the wind and you know the that's the only thing we have and saying give me something more is eo's dream right the live for more claim is right there inside of that statement and you can live for more than just that shout into the wind you can live for something larger than just yourself and that's kind of it's a proclamation at that point Mm -hmm. of of sort of the difference in ideology between him and eo's dream and the golds and their thought on legacy it's it's a difference in legacy yeah
1: uh, that said, this sort of guttural howl is only as powerful as it is if he succeeds. It's just kind of desperate if he's then executed.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, it's I, I mean it reads as desperate or like a last cry, right? Like a it, a final rallying cry. It's also interesting yeah, it's, because he doesn't, use, doesn't use words to cry, say his. Point. I felt like right, but if he were to just get like cut down
1: right there, it would almost read comedically.
0: Maybe I, I don't know that it would. The The reason that I say that is because so much of Darrow and we've, we've joked about it a lot is like speeches pre something big. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and in, in the most critical of moment, he doesn't open his mouth and give a long prosaic speech. He becomes a man of action. And so without saying anything, because he knows that it'll get punched in the face or slit quicker by Aja or shot faster by the jackal. He instead just howls.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense.
0: Yeah. <coughs> It's definitely a, a, a great moment. It's there's there's so much lathered all over this chapter, which is why we're lingering in it for so long. Mm-hmm. So the jackal is obviously, as we kind of described earlier, is appointed as the executioner. He he obviously has pressure uh, on top of Octavia and Aja to prevent them from stopping this. He even references himself as the the future hand of justice or something like that. And he pulls Severo's gun out, thinking it would be a good way to send him off with his friend's gun. Of course, you know, the, the sort of mixed metaphor. But when he puts the gun to the back of his head and pulls the trigger, it fires a hot blank, burns the back of his head. But suddenly the jig is up and all of the action unfolds in an instant. Mm. Cassius kills many Legionnaires very quickly with one of the most beautiful descriptions I've ever, like, seen For a stab through the head. Yeah. And it only kind of works because of the way that the razor is, right? Where it's like reaching out of the legionnaire's throat and it looks like just a red tongue. Like he's just sticking his tongue out. But then when he yanks it backwards, there's just a hole in the back of his head. Oh my God. Just going backwards
1: a little bit. This entire thing is dependent on the jackal being vindictive enough and vain enough to reject his own like uh
0: scorcher for Severus. so i don't think that's true i actually i thought about this earlier and i almost put in the notes but then i thought about it a little bit more and i decided that it wasn't true so the reason why that i think that that's not the case is if the jackal would have approached with his own scorcher cassius would have called it sooner okay you know like it would have he would have just taken it a beat or two sooner he yeah, would have known but because he knows that he knows the circumstance with severo's gun
1: yeah jack the jackal would have been
0: it would have been better would have quit. happened
1: in a different order in a much different yes order. i think yes the, yeah the jackal would be the first target then
0: correct correct in a in a like we don't really know because we don't know if grito or han shot first we uh, because we don't have the uh the old fan fiction of no, what would happen if he had we, his own we, gun but, but we have the footage But we have the footage and we can evaluate. I do agree with you, though. It's it's it is uh, it is a point that I literally thought about bringing up and I I cut specifically because I thought and I was like Cassius would have just called it earlier because he's got that he's he's in control. That
1: was built into the plan, I'm sure. But the way the plan unfolded was entirely dependent on the vanity of the jackal.
0: Well, vanity, not vanity. That's the wrong term for it. But the uh, you know what? I think vanity is the right term. I don't think that. I don't think that we're being in that that's entirely correct. Mm-hmm. The, the specific sequence of events of course is reliant on the Jackal deciding that the sequence is proper, but yeah, you're right. Okay. Being, being I'm on vain. your side. I agree with you. Okay. Okay. Hey, <laughs> um, <laughs> And right after that, Darrow, of course, Cassius frees them by clicking the buttons after he kills the Legionnaires inside the room, leaving really just the Joy Knights, or the Joy and Truth Knight um, in the room. Aja, the Protean Knight. Four Olympic Knights, by the way, in the same room. And then uh, the Out Jackal th- as well. Out of 13? 12? 12, 12. 12. Yeah, 12. 13 uh, Institute houses. Later, I, I, man, I like accidentally spoiled this, strangely, but there is technically... It's an accident, I think, in book four, book five, where there's an extra night that's added in the same way that there's an extra house that's added in (laughs) here. Um, But, you know, that's such a not real spoiler
1: as a means of rectifying the initial error or is it just another error?
0: It's it's an error. Um, (laughs) So it it was strictly an error. I think it was shadow and fear were the mistakes. So he
1: intended for them both to be the same.
0: Yes. Yeah, right. Just like actually I don't yeah, Vulcan and Venus were also Vulcan and Venus. You know penis. when you Vulcan. Hulk, <laughs> not Vulcan penis. That's not that's not it that at all. <laughs> not it at all. Okay. But so Darrow Darrow is freed from the, the thing. Obviously, Mustang immediately charges for a weapon. Darrow pulls the knife out of his vest and jumps and stabs the sovereign Octavia Loon seven times, ripping her abdomen and chest apart when he pulls up and cleaves through her almost and effectively ending the reign of the Loon sovereigns. Why did he let her stay alive here? That is a great question. I think that she was beyond repair, but that, I mean, he very well could have slit her throat. I think that he had to prep for Aja was really the biggest thing. Like, he only had so much time, so he he could only stab her as much as possible, and then he had to, like, jump and switch. Okay.
1: The way it's written, it makes it seem like he just kind of leaves her bloodied and bleeding out, but we know... From a lot of experience in this book series, that people
0: that are bloodied and bleeding out don't necessarily
1: die for good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Especially uh, one small goblin.
1: Especially fucking Darrow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fair. And then the combat with Aja. My God. it is It is so well done in mm-hmm. a way that Aja is made to be this true presence on the page where like she is taking on the three of them. Of course, Darrow's at a bit of a disadvantage. He doesn't have his short sword hand because it was taken by the jackal. Um, was it the jackal or was it Cassius that cut off his hand? No, it was, it was, it was the jackal. No, the jackal picked up his hand. Cassius had to cut it off. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think, right. Yeah, I think Cassius cut it off. Correct. Which just doubles you down on the like Cassius is a fucking yep. jerk ass. But, Jerk you know, ass. they had to get to the sovereign. Yeah, welcome. We're, we're here. Yes. This, this is what happens when we have to do shots. Also, this mint julep piece of shit garbage is actually pretty good. All right, with, the, with the lemon and the vodka. Yeah. Good to hear. Sure. <laughs> good to you know, to I'm shocked. I'm going to name it by the end of this. No, you're not. I, right. I am. And I'm going to put the recipe on our fucking website. I okay. took a photo of the drink already. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Yeah. I, I think that it is well-executed in all fronts yeah. on, on the side of Aja. She is truly a force to be reckoned with.
1: She is entirely. That said, this is one of those scenes, one of the few scenes in this entire series that I don't think lends itself to the the screen. We get a sort of play-by-play pl- play play from Darrow, but it's happening and being described in way slower than real life. If this were to be done in live action... It would just look like a flurry. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could do it in like animation in in live action. I don't think this comes across well. I think you have to kind of dumb it down and take out
0: a ton of the detail and just look like three on one. I think there are two options, right? So there there is the dumbed down option that you're talking about. In general, I'm going to prefer live action from a from yeah. a representation I, standpoint, because I a like I, I prefer live action personally I love like love death and robots. They did a great job with science fiction concepts and really great short form, short stories that said live action will always have some sort of mental superiority because it looks a little bit closer to real life. That said, how you would do this is either a, you rewrite the scene to be comprehensible and comprehensible is a three on one, or you shoot this like your Zack Snyder in this one scene and use a shit ton of slow-mo and, slow speeding yeah intro frames so like the, the other way that you could do it is you can you can manage it by showing slow flashy movements where she's swinging between mustang and then countering into cassius and wrapping around him and nicking his ear or whatever like you you can show all of that but what you have to do is you have to like do slow start and stops and like kind of it, it feels it can feel jerky when done poorly which zack snyder has done it poorly in the past, at the very least, but it, it could look like that. It it would work like that. But I don't I don't want Zack Snyder directing. I mean, you could. I th- I feel
1: like there are some fight
0: scenes from Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie, yeah, similar similar style. He actually he does it better than Snyder does. Snyder Snyder tries to construct photos, I think, which is unique yeah. and interesting. Guy Ritchie focuses on the entire like emotional movement of a fight scene. I think Zack Snyder thinks in the way that like comic book frames are. Yeah. And I think Guy right. Ritchie cares about the film medium. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guy Ritchie's a good call. Yeah. I I hadn't thought about that ahead of time, but I think he could do a good job with this. Or is uh, his DP, he's got one DP that he works with a ton. It's actually I don't know what DP stands for. I know what uh, DP director, stands for but director of I don't, photography. I don't, I don't know what it stands for
1: in this context.
0: <laughs> um. Director of photography. Okay. Um Yeah. <laughs> It's they're they're generally the people who do a lot of the framing and construction and like they kind of settle on like moods and angles. The director is like the orchestra, the or, the orchestrator of the entire orchestra. The conductor in charge of yeah. Thank you, dear God. There you go. Um, of of the entire orchestra standing over top and pointing to the the photography, letting that go off, making sure that the. Physical effects are going off at the same time and knowing that there's going to be some CGI in the middle that he's going to have to plan and understanding that he's also going to have to talk to like sound to get shit to work right. So directors are really interesting because they're in charge of so much, but they aren't directors are behind the camera and they also like manage the shots. But for the most part, a lot of film and TV shows are are managed by other folks Behind the camera immediately. It's not like every director is sitting. With the camera on their face. Mm-hmm. You know it's, okay. that's not strictly their job. Right. Their job is the whole project. So that makes sense. Yeah anyway. So then all kind of the little pieces. Fall into place after that right. Cassius throws Darrow a syringe of snakebite, Which is a courtesy of holiday to bring back Severo. Scyther helped to build the vest. That was that was exposed by the blanks. And kind of exploded outwards. To show Antonia. And to convince Antonia that Severo was dead and that Cassius was leading them and, you know, leading Antonia and everyone else and convincing everyone else that, like, this was a this was a trap that was well executed by someone who was on the side of the sovereign and society. It was Mm -hmm. so well, well telegraphed that obviously you were convinced you didn't have any suspicions.
1: Yeah, no, I was entirely convinced this was. But there were a whole lot of turns that did not cross my mind ahead of time. Apparently they yeah. did. Like the Cassius thing. Like apparently well, like I guess that before the book started.
0: But uh <laughs> don't remember that and uh
1: disagree with that still. To this yeah. to this moment
0: I I think what's so what's so interesting about uh, some of the the opinions and everything else that you held is that like we talked about Dr. Verini and Mickey last week. We talked about some of the like immediate collaborations that were happening between folks. And you're like, I don't know. And like you, you couldn't work it out, which is good. That's that's like good. Who clever would writing. guess that? Nobody that I know. One of our guests, one of our, our, one of our upcoming guests that we'll talk about at the end of the episode. I, I'm so excited for him to tell the story, but he had a whole moment on chapter fifty eight when Severo died. And it's it's cleverly written. All the all the Chekhov's guns are planted, but man, it does not it's not predictable. <laughs> not in the slightest. Fair enough. But you remember when I talked about Cymbeline last week and the Poems Connection? I do. You went on and on and on. I, I did. I did. And part of the reason that I went on and on and on about it is, A, like a lot of people, I said sibeline the whole time. Cybeline's one of the pronunciations. Cymbeline is the more common pronunciation when I, I did you a little bit more. You can just say you're research. Wrong. You don't have to, like, pretend that you're right obscurely. Well... In this circumstance, I was right obscurely because okay. um, that's how I remembered it and how I read a lot of people write about it on the Internet. And then I did a little bit of like natural Shakespearean search and they they said Cymbeline. So I'm correcting for those folks. So okay. correcting. Remember, it's correcting, not adding alternate correction. <laughs> Leave me alone. No. But that poem clearly <laughs> telegraphs this moment. Clearly. Right. i didn't read the poem you know right right exactly no one read the fucking poem because they're like oh this is a this is a poem that you read over the top of someone's grave neat but the plot of cymbeline directly translate not not perfectly directly of course because i said it's kind of Mulan like but it it translates to Severo almost as well as it does to darrow in in the upcoming scene of course which is you know this like faked death revival moment Mm So yeah yeah it would you would you think of Severo's whole revival?
1: I think um obviously it makes sense in hindsight. It caught me off guard. it really did, but it does seem kind of odd. It seemed odd that uh Sever really didn't get basically any sort of epitaph, even internally in Darrow's monologue. um just there was nothing. there was no no words for the falling Severo.
0: So it kind of makes sense that he wasn't actually fallen. Yeah, right. There there was barely a passing moment. And given a lot of the scenes post Severo's death are quick and their action, it's moving from moment to moment. He has some brief reflections that don't feel like grief that you'd expect for for Severo. But mm-hmm. some of that's the immediacy of the the betrayal quote of Cassius right. and playing the part and acting in that, you know, 30 page stretch like he doesn't know what's happening yeah so yeah it it makes sense i i'm definitely glad that you agree like in hindsight that a lot of this checks out
1: oh yeah certainly
0: with that though we stab the snake bite into severo we pull the little plunger we revive the motherfucker he comes back with a good old fuck right at the end of the chapter and we move into chapter 62 which means Omnis we take a shot vir lupus it doesn't mean we take a shot Which one are you Uh, taking? Lemon. The lime drop in my case. Lime drop. All right. I'll take the lemon. All right. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. That was actually super tasty. Yeah, I bet. Like, I mean, it was it was just lime instead of lemon. So it was a little bit more aggressive. I honestly like lime better than lemon. I I really like lemonade a lot. And so that I think that's Mm. I don't know. There's it's it's just a little bit more subtle. Lime cuts through a lot of things. It does. That's true. I like lime in food, but I like lemon in drinks, if that makes sense. I like both in candy. I do like both in candy. <laughs> give me give me the green and yellow Skittles until I die. Uh, the green ones are else. now
1: green apple. Oh, yeah. The green apple. Right. It's right. the biggest tragedy of my lifetime.
0: Agreed. And I lived through Agreed. 9-11. Um, <laughs> <fuck>. <laughs> OK, so chapter <laughs> 62. Omnis vir lupus. Like we said, we drank beforehand. We, d- we did our little shot here. That was great. <clears throat> and the fucking goblin is back, baby. He turns the tide of the fight very quickly while the jackal is still yells pinned to the floor <laughs> by Darrow, which I think is just so great as <laughs> an image is like he's just like sitting there, like trying to waffle up and like reach for the razor, like mm-hmm. scraping at it. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I, good. I absolutely
1: love Dar- uh, not Darrow's uh, Sevros energy throughout this entire thing. Like he he is breathing so much life into this fight. That mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was calculated and cold and surgical one sided. Yeah. But but even the descriptions were not colorful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: It, it felt very dour to yeah. sum it up in a word. Yeah, exactly.
1: And uh, several changes that entirely by coming back from the dead. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I find it great that here in this moment, too, and we we kind of we mentioned a lot of the different things that went into it. But the himanthus blossom that was used on Darrow is also what was used on Severo yeah. to show that he was dead. It's the same thing. And, and so
1: I think it, it, it would have been weird to not use that again. There's so much that. Well, yeah. So much that comes back from from the first book in these final chapters that I feel like it would have been kind of strange not to reapproach a really cool chemical property.
0: Yeah, of of a plant that grows on Mars that's so important to the reds. And so the fact that it comes back as an important item moment yes. poison toxin here is is great. It's the downfall of society is based on a little red flower. Yep. Exactly. Which is fantastic that they ignored because it grew underground you know like so cool mm-hmm. so cool great great so work and, and severo does a lot of heavy lifting on the humor throughout throughout this section oh, yeah. right aja contributes though to the humor by telling him to like shut up constantly where she just like is clearly breaking between sword fighting the four of them with sword fighting razor razor dueling the four of them you can call it sword uh, fighting i get what you mean yeah i mean they're, they're dueling they're all they're all yeah the battle between the four of them and he, she's just like yelling shut up because she needs to focus and it like doesn't want this <laughs> and man it, the fact that they like barely like they still barely make it out with the four of them although that's enough to completely overwhelm her it's just speaks to speaks to haja grimace you know mm-hmm. ash lord's daughter but then she's um she's summarily executed in kind of a like 4v1 movie style right where you get kind of the combat of each individual line of like and then her tendon was cut and he said this and then the you know stabbed through the shoulder and this was said and then lopped off the arm and she looks at it in shock as though it's someone else's arm and says you know this is for Mars and then fucking Severo jumps up and impales her onto the fucking ground yep. right then and there revenge for Trig. Revenge for Holiday. Revenge for Ephraim. The the fucking murderer of Octavia Loon. The Fury is dead. Not quite though. Not quite. She's skewered. She's yeah. She's she's looking pretty rough. Yeah. Yep. She's she's having a tough time while she's bleeding out on the swords though. Oh yeah. How do you feel about that moment?
1: Ah, uh, so much tension. I think is the biggest thing I felt because I I didn't want to feel any sort of victory until it was actually fucking done. Because I I really felt that any sort of pause would give her an opportunity to defy death.
0: Well, yeah, especially since like immediately in the text of the last chapter, she was built up as the best razor, the best trained student of the best razor fighter ever known. Yeah, You know, just I mean just speaks volumes to the fact that like Darrow was trained by the same guy and is nowhere near what she is. And he doesn't even have his fucking sword hand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Too. It's a lot. Aja gets a final pained moment between her and her sovereign Octavia, where Octavia says time itself will remember you. And then Severo steps in and says, nah, probably not Ninety nine night grimace and just fucking lops her head off. Like yes. it's no big deal. Just dead um
1: this really want like this really makes me want a picture of grimace from the old mcdonald's cartoons mm-hmm. with his head like at his feet with in the in the old mcdonald's font nighty night grimace
0: over that the top of him. sounds perfect we're gonna make that happen <laughs> we're gonna make that happen that's gonna be If I can make it happen, that's gonna be our thumbnail for this episode.
1: I'll put it together if necessary. It's not gonna look that Mm -hmm. good if I do it,
0: but we'll we'll get it. We'll get it. But uh, yeah, McDonald's grimace. Look out! We're coming. It's spelled differently though. Right. Right. Anyway, Mm -hmm.
1: it'll happen regardless of that little quip. There's so much, so much, much needed comedy here from from Severo. It's been pretty heavy and pretty void of comedy for a little while, even before Severo died. Like when was the last time there was a really funny scene in this, in this book? Right.
0: I mean, he's, he's just a great release valve. Right. And to, to let him, you know, open up here and be, be a moment of, uh, fun.
1: I guess the most recent sort of little burst of something funny was before severo's wedding when they were when severo was changing getting ready so it's been long enough
0: and i was i was getting sad (laughs) getting sad by the grim dark world of darrow's inner monologue again yep it's like the first 50 pages of red rising all over again no
1: no this one's written well
0: (laughs) just go shit (laughs) um i i talked to our uh, our webmaster actually last night about this he is 150 pages into 150 ish into uh red rising right now and he was like man i almost stopped in those first 50 pages but then pierce brown talked about the quadrille and i was like fuck yeah quadrille <laughs> and i just i couldn't help but go pj did not have the same reaction <laughs> Yeah, uh, which is which is funny so he he actually our webmaster finally he's he li- he likes reading he doesn't spend enough time doing it and he finally is starting to uh to work through it and catch up with us but mm-hmm. it's a good time
1: oh yeah oh thank yeah. you
0: tim for all your hard work here's yeah. your uh here's your episode shout out that you won't hear for a fucking year probably <laughs> <laughs> love you Tim. Um, love you so Man, I, I find it I find it interesting, of course, that we move from that moment where Aja is decapitated to Lysander, little little nine Lysander, ten year old Lysander standing up, grabbing a razor, and getting ready to fight as this little kid to protect his grandma, like any ten year old would probably do. Mm. And um Okay. You know? <laughs> well I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I was a dumbass ten year old. I'd That's probably do that. True. My grandparents are awesome, so <laughs> I hey, would I would point. do that. Uh, yeah, I I mean, uh, it's um, yeah. I mean, he he stands up, and it's pretty futile, of course. Yeah, uh, he uh, he kind of realizes that they will fucking kill
1: him. Like, there's the there's the look exchange between Mustang and Darrow after Cassius mm-hmm. says. Like, I don't want to kill you like that. Yeah,
0: they would. They probably would. It's probably a murder.
1: Despite the fact that this is the protagonist and he is kind of held to a fairly rigorous moral standard, he they are leading a terrorist organization. (laughs) And they did just murder all of the highest ranking members of the government. Of the solar system, yeah, yep. um What's another fucking ten-year-old?
0: <laughs> and several kind of has that opinion. <laughs> like he's like, better yeah. to just clean this out, <laughs> throw out the trash. Yep,
1: understandably, yeah. and uh, <sighs> I would argue, rightly, given mm. their circumstances.
0: We'll uh, we'll talk more about that later <laughs> with the, with the Cassius decision. But yeah. 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 It's a uh, it's I'm still
1: of the opinion that it was a dumb fucking decision and it was just blind luck that let Cassius be persuadable.
0: I don't think that it was blind luck. And I think that that leads really well into our next kind of pointed topic here, which is, you know, we, we come to Cassius and why he decided to go against Octavius uh, Octavia, not Octavius. Uh, and. I think that there has never been a clearer moment of obvious of an obvious turncoat, right? Cassius cares so much about his family, except for Carnus, cares so much about his family. And obviously, it's been a sticking point for him and Darrow for the entire series. It's been the entire point of their blood feud. But he lost his entire family and he kind of he always thought that it was Darrow. He always thought that it was the rising. He gets the. Hollow cube of which was not described until this moment to fully explain what was going on. But the fact that it wasn't Darrow and the sons that murdered all the Bolognas in Golden Sun, it was the Jackal and the fact that Octavia let it happen and hid it. And so that is the reason for his rebellion. And I think that that, in my head, shuts down the Darrow shouldn't trust Cassius fully thing. Because I think more than anything else, it's been proven time and time again, with the exception of Carnus, that Cassius prefers family and wanted his family to do well. And he does have this sort of upright sensibility about him that, yeah, I mean, he probably sides with the society more often than he doesn't. But he also he also sides with people, with humans, with decisions. He's not an irrational thinker. He just kind of like. He's a 20 year old and he, for a brief moment, got sucked into a power vacuum and then kind of came out on the other side with it with a different understanding once he was inside of the rising and kind of a captive. But further yet, the the cube and the moment with Darrow, I think, is really solidified here as a true moment, not something that you thought was very fake and stilted like we talked about last week. You know, it, it actually ends up being a very Valid character moment. Yeah. It, Sorry, I went on a rant. It's just, uh, I, no, I think it's important it, to paint Cassius as a good guy because he is a good guy in the end.
1: I think, um, I think to put it because I love bringing this up, the alignment chart, the Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> alignment chart, it, it really of solidif- solidifies him as lawful good. Yeah. And he, he has, he follows a certain code of laws and follows them very rigorously mhm and when when circumstances change his perception of what he's fighting for he is he doesn't keep fighting for it out of out of the sake of continuing what he started he reevaluates and
0: pushes towards the path that is good yeah with without question I think it's, it's what's really interesting. Uh, I think he, like Roke, had faith in some of the values of society, but Cassius actually believes that they can be improved upon because the head of the society was clearly rotting. And so that's why he he kind of settles in on the things can change. And that's why I agree with Darrow is that there's got to be something better than this. Like someone else can lead the same thing better than you, but maybe the other system deserves a shot. It's not like he's fully, he doesn't like fully embrace the revolution, so to speak, but he thinks that maybe the revolution is better. Like it could be better. And so that's worth trying. Right. Because the current shit sucks and killed his entire family.
1: Well, yep, they
0: did. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I think Octavia's last gasp is really interesting. Before she warns of the jackal, she's forced to reflect on the decisions she's made, like. Like allowing for Cassius's family to be murdered and not trying the jackal immediately. Like the burning of Rhea and, you know, everything there. I find it interesting that Daryl positions it as her looking on her sins at the end of her life. But she rejects that idea and says that they were sacrifices as though they were intentional and that was acceptable at the time. It was the choices that had to be made in order to rule. What do you make of that? And do you think Darrow would do the same if in a similar position? Um, She seems entirely
1: genuine, doesn't seem to be coming across as vindictive or spiteful or anything like that. And yes, I think you would have to. I think at the scale that they're acting on, there will always be situations where he has to make sacrifices in order to... Improve the most amount of people at once or make, make sacrifices in decisions of who's right and who's wrong. Like there, there, there are going to be so many sacrifices and it's going to be so taxing even to Darrow, who's not going to be the leader. Mm-hmm. Presumably he'll be involved in leadership, but not the leader. And he'll still have really heavy decisions to, to make and sacrifices to, to make.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth also mentioning, too, here, like the Dox of Ganymede, he's already kind of made a decision that was a sacrifice. He intentionally sacrificed the the Sons of Ares, right, for the alliance with the Moon Lords. And then also, subsequently, he decided that the right thing to do was to sacrifice the lives under the veil that it was the Sovereign that did so, Octavia that did so, and Roke and, you know, the society at large bombing the the docks of Ganymede which are also inadvertently sacrifices. He hasn't had to deal with that yet, but it's clear here that he should maybe be thinking about that and considering it because he's done the same thing.
1: I think he's not thinking about it for probably the same reason why the sovereign kind of speaks to it without
0: is bringing it up. Yeah.
1: Well, yes, but she speaks to this sacrifice in in a very diplomatic and not necessarily that heavy way. Because in, in that position, she doesn't see the explicit results of those decisions. It's completely yeah. obscured. Like mm-hmm. it, it is it is a signature on a piece of paper, and that's the end of what she has to deal with with it. That was kind of the same with the docs of Ganymede. Daryl made know. a decision, and it, it was completely obscured from him. He hasn't dealt with any backlash from it. He hasn't seen any aftermath
0: yet. Sure, sure. I think you're right on the signature for Darrow, right? So, like, he he's still looking at it as a signature on the paper. I think Octavia has, even in her last moments, righted herself emotionally that she made the right choice in burning Rhea to preserve the society, right? Yeah. So she's, she has no regrets about the decisions that she made. I think Darrow, with your metaphor, might have regrets about the decision with Ganymede, but hasn't had time to come to that conclusion.
1: The Sovereign has been ruling for 60 years even if she felt some regret for the decision that she made versus what she could have been like what the alternative was Mm -hmm. i'm sure she has trained herself to suppress any of those feelings because there's just so many of them there'd have to be so many decisions made on a weekly basis over the course of 60 years Mm -hmm. that you you can't you can't bring yourself to grieve over one decision or another, even though, yes, the burning of Rhea was a huge thing and a huge decision. But at the time, it was probably not that big of a big of a decision to make Com- comparatively because it was an mm-hmm. uprising. It was let's do this or we will all fucking die. And they, they legitimately pose a threat to us.
0: Yeah. And this is
1: coming from not necessarily the most explicit knowledge of that canon, but something something like that, like it was a decision that was made tactically because otherwise maybe we wouldn't be here. And over time, Mm -hmm. that gets justified and it becomes calloused. Yep. And it becomes a calloused emotion. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily saying that she made the right decisions, but I think over that amount of time, Any decision that she makes, she justifies as the right decision and puts out any sort of opposing view just out of her mind, because what's the point of dwelling on that when you have so many other decisions to make? I kind of rambled there. I don't know if that.
0: No, I I think it was I think it was all really good. I think especially bringing up the fact that it is like it is a callus that she probably rides over a lot is actually really interesting, especially when you compare it to the Ash Lord in the next chapter. Right who is effectively the executor of that decision and it's not a callous to him that was a just a decision that was made just a signature on the paper like you said it is a fundamental thing that still haunts him is pulling that trigger it's calling the him. order right it's de- it has like his name is the ash lord because he burned raya like yeah yeah I think you can't get better than those two comparisons side by side in the society leadership and how they feel about those moments. And Lysander is interesting because I think that he is the he fills the gap between those two perspectives that we're presented with. Octavia in her last moments still admits that she did no wrong, and Ashlord still alive. Ashlord grimace. He believes that what he did was necessary but wrong. And I mean, he's not—he's not dead or even approaching dead yet. But like, mm-hmm. you know, he—he uh, he definitely very quickly is convinced by Lysander <laughs> of all people. So we'll—we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But with that, the chapter ends. Chapter sixty-two with Jackal's wicked laughter and an assumption of something bad. About to happen, chapter 63. Mm-hmm. So we move into chapter 63, the silence. And boy, it doesn't start right away with this, but the the line that pulls me in, or the the paragraph that pulls me in, is the one where Jackal's talking to Darrow and recounting the lessons of the Institute. And he says, I remember the feeling of being under the ground, Darrow. The cold stone under my hands, my Pluto house members around me hunched in darkness. The steam of their breaths, looking to me. I remember how afraid I was of failing, of how long I had prepared, how little my father thought of me. All my life weighed in those moments, all of it slipping away. We'd run from our castle, fleeing Vulcan. Excise a little portion here. It was a week before we killed a girl and ate her legs to survive. She begged us not to, begged us to choose something else, but I learned in that moment that if no one sacrifices, then no one survives. And a fuck, that is an incredible line. B with what we just talked about, our Octavia, in thinking about sacrifice, you know, like that lines up he with makes their a really compelling
1: argument. He, he makes a really compelling argument, and I can't find a fault in it. Like, what happens if none of them eat any of the other children? They all fucking die, right?
0: Right. So what's worse? It's the whole Dahmer party paradox, right?
1: Like, yeah. So I,
0: I, I mean, you're faced with an unthinkable choice, and you have to think through it. That's that's reality at a certain and, point.
1: And at a certain point, it's tragic that that decision to survive, really, truly, effectively, that was his decision, was to survive, and yeah, that that
0: follows die. him as his biggest black mark through the rest of his adult life he's yeah he's referred to as the jackal because of this moment yeah because he was willing to consume his own to live which includes like other people were there i mean we don't we don't explicitly get it but we assume based on the description that like lilath was there and had to follow him into the situation and followed him out of
1: it we do also assume given the way things worked out and the way that things were conducted he was
0: the one making that decision oh yeah he also made that decision for sure for everyone else right right
1: but at this like
0: there's not a hard better decision it's
1: hard to not hard to fault but hard to argue with resorting to something unthinkable where the only alternative is death for everybody
0: yeah it's it's a one for the many attitude right mm-hmm. also it's important to note a less serious way that this is a point in which pierce brown broke canon and added a 13th house to the 12th house structure of the institute which is vulcan <laughs> <laughs> yeah so fun fact of course most most people know this of course that there, there was an accident here there's an accident with the olympic knights that lends them both to have 13 as opposed to 12 but were they interesting separate enough, funny enough accidents I am almost 100 percent certain, but I think that he's also been to, he's like effectively been like, yeah, well, the fact that there's two 13s means that I can line it up well and it works fine. So he just kind of like he just shrugs it off and he's like, whatever. Do you guys care? And everyone's like, no, we don't keep writing books. He's <laughs> like, cool. All right. All right. I'm going to do that. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Once uh, once you complete the full series i recommend the and to anyone who's listening who's watched the entire thing i recommend all the various like book tour dark dark age youtube videos that he shot while he was on book tour with like faqs and stuff like that with audience members they're great they're great little bits of uh bits of information some of which i've talked about on the podcast without spoiling future things yeah like the hat we we talked about that the death hat from book one which is notorious it's pretty funny though so the, the end of this, though, is that we also find out the final twist of the book. The final twist, well, not the final twist of the book, but the final twist of the knife, the brutal twist here is that the jackal didn't have the bombs on Mars. He planted the bombs on Luna, and he was holding the sovereign hostage to elect himself sovereign to hand off that torch. Dara fucked it all up, of course, and Lilath knows that. And so he starts just blowing the shit out of these fucking cities and. Boy, oh boy. Mass, mass genocide.
1: I think this play is really, really smart from the Jackal. Like evil, oh, yeah. E- fucking evil. Of course. Sure. But looking at this entirely from a tactical perspective, um, he set this up as a as a means of pressuring and kind of strong arming the Sovereign into giving him essentially unlimited power. But he also knows that Darrow is kind of the perfect target for this kind of pressure as well. Because Darrow cares about people.
0: Right. Just in general. He cares about all the
1: little people. He cares about individuals. And the Jackal really doesn't. So, I mean, the, the actions are clearly atrocious and despicable and whatever other horrible term you want to put towards it. But it perfectly fits his character. It is so honestly well matching exactly what the Jackal would do. As a character as he's been built up until
0: this point. And I'm I'm really happy with the way that this plays out. I, I think without question, I agree with you. I think that just to kind of like tag into that, he starts triggering the bombs and he tells Darrow that there can be peace if Darrow kills himself, makes himself a martyr, like his wife who died, like EO, just kind of like rubs it in his face, scrubs it back at him. And... With every couple of passing moments, he continues to detonate bombs, killing millions at a time, making Darrow contemplate this faster than he would otherwise. It fits brilliantly with his character. He's he's a fucking fam, familicidal maniac. He he fucking eliminated the b- Bolognas outside of two, and he also executes millions at a whim. He has no real goal, outside of the power or control of everyone in the society. But even then, like what's imagining the jackal is sovereign in some alternate reality is awful like there's no reality in which that that is positive for society um, like octavia was better than he i don't know about that oh man i don't think, i think i think the I, jackal I, I think a benevolent jackal could run a good society no but i, I think not we don't I have I a benevolent jackal, jackal
1: would run a very lean efficient society I think I think the society that the jackal runs would run very cleanly. It's just a lot
0: of fucking people would die for that to happen. So in response to the ask to make himself a martyr, Darrow takes a second and reflects on his life and all of the friends that would await him in the afterlife. He thinks about Roke. He thinks about Lorne. He thinks about all these people who could be waiting for him in a veil that he doesn't fully acknowledge or believe in. And then we really land on like the crucial theme. Cooks, cooks are the theme. Shit. <laughs> is it? Is it cooks? It might it's be cooks. cooks.
1: Just. It's always cooks. I. <laughs> I saw. I saw you write theme in the notes ahead, and I had to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. I no. I, I mean, <clears throat> in a jesting way, it's actually funny how like cooks keep coming up as a concept that seems to like intertwine it's well because with people the, make fucking food, Crossland. Well, of course, and that's a good thing to have in a story. It doesn't mean that cooks are the theme of the book. Well we'll get back to my my concept I that I'm talking about here with Darrow in are, but a moment. But it
1: doesn't mean they have
0: to be. But but <laughs> our our web our web guru, Tim and I had a conversation last night as well, which is most good fiction has a couple of different traits and two that like lend itself to being really good or really talented writing is you know where they eat and you know where they shit. And like that is those are details that like just mean that you're paying enough attention to the actual human behavior of characters mm-hmm. that you care about every possible thing that's going on with them. Right. And so the the reason that I kind of like jokingly reflect on the the whole Cook's theme is a. It's lended itself to very interesting chapters like Bacon and Eggs, Chapter 24 and Golden Sun. It's still on my brain for some reason. And a number of other different moments like rescuing the cook in, in Red Rising. It's important because it's a real thing that real humans would do. And that's. It's, yeah. it's something that factually people care about like they care about their food not tasting like shit because it lends to the rest of the happiness of themselves so yeah there's your breakdown of the themes of cooks and why i thought it was important yep. to make these jokes and references it makes total sense three books now and 30 episodes has it been 30 it's been 32 jesus yeah this this is 32 man All it's right. crazy anyway moving on so Darrow is taking the second, of course, I I just want to reiterate the thought because we disconnected with Cooks that he's reflecting in his life and all the friends that could await him in the afterlife. And he lands on the crucial theme in this dark world, not Cooks, but faith and hope and that hope lost and faith lost while you might lose the connection to the immediacy of a God or a spiritual afterlife or things like that, that he's lost over the course of the, the story. You can regain faith and hope in the people that you loved and having friends and this social network of important people to you, even in the darkest of times. And I think that what's what's so crazy to me is I experienced these stories for the first time well before the pandemic. And in post now, I can't help but look at that and be like, yeah, that's actually like what connects people, what matters the most and is very, very important inside of this book and inside of life in general. So I I really I love the theme of this book. It's it's kind of it feels dark when you look at it at first and it doesn't pay off until here when you're looking at it thematically.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you
0: lose, you lose friends, you lose those connections throughout this book. But you you arrive at this place now where it's like all that matters is what I have.
1: This this entire sort of passage seems a little out of place, though. The the tone and the pacing is entirely different, and obviously it's an internal monologue, but it, it really it doesn't blend smoothly with everything else surrounding it. That said, I think it's important, and I think it's a, a powerful message to be had here, and uh, as you said, kind of ties everything together thematically.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely understand what you're saying, tonally what I think is a good point of reflection here as well is that Darrow, always has these similar kind of moments when he's on the edge and he's going to die right he, he always has these kind of reflections in the immediacy as to like oh yo I need to live for the dream or like oh X like I need to do this and he has these moments before that he's going to die and so it kind of feels like it's that same sort of tense lead up but instead it, instead of him surrendering to reality and maybe being saved by a friend or any other sort of intervening moment he takes action for himself and realizes that he can he can own own the moment yeah because the jackal pressures for a swift answer and gets a no and one of the gross the grossest most gruesome moments in the original trilogy occurs here the last time i pinned him down i took the wrong weapon what are hands to a creature like him All his evils, all his lies are spun with the tongue. So I grab it with my helldiver hand, pinning it between my forefinger and thumb like a fleshy little pit fiber that it is. And with a great pull, I rip out the tongue of the jackal. And goddammit, that description of him writhing there is just shocking. Yeah. Shocking and satisfying.
1: And yeah. (laughs) Thardic. But... I was on edge the entire time after that moment curious if something like that would trigger a mass detonation
0: yeah and i think the the reality is is like darrow could have killed the connection with Lilith, right like that's even mentioned like he could have connected killed it but wanted her to hear that he was still alive but that he was in pain uh, to to like reflect that back to her because she is so obedient i think and- that would have
1: been even even worse. I think killing the connection definitely
0: would have triggered something bad. I agree with you, and I think that it was good to keep it open, of course. I think that was actually the better de- better decision. Doesn't mean that it didn't hurt her any less. Oh, yeah. Know? Oh, certainly. As we mentioned, Lilith keeps activating bombs. They're unsure of what to do, they being Mustang, Cassius, and Darrow, and Sabro, until... Little boy Lysander chimes in to help them save the day. He calls the Ashlord on his digital hollow phone, convinced the Ashlord by his young little ten-year-old godson. He turns the fleet on Lilith's ships with the howlers, with the rising, with Victra, everyone else that's in charge of the fleet, and Orion to save as many as possible as they can to get to that that ship that Lilith's on.
1: This is a surprisingly Good and surprisingly tactical decision for a fucking 10 year old
0: yeah that's that's interesting is it is it interesting
1: it's not interesting that's just he's a fucking 10 year old
0: I don't I mean his name is Lysandra Loon and he's a he's a 10 year old feels like if he's being this tactical at 10 maybe maybe he's important in the next book Maybe you shouldn't let him
1: live. I agree <laughs> entirely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Hmm. Woo. Hmm. 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 With that, chapter sixty-four, <laughs> and another Hail. shot, and another shot. This is our our third shot. This is the final one. We uh, we only have two more chapters to go, and the epilogue. So right. we, we can do it. We can do so, it. So I got this. Is the, uh... this is a long episode, but this is the this is the end of the fucking book. So uh this is the the end of the trilogy
1: well i'm talking about the mint julep
0: it's the the mint julep this is the mint julep yours is some sort of bastardization that uh yeah we are going to call it in celebration of this book because the mint julep has like a history with kentucky yeah and the the derby and the races we're gonna call this one the mustang (laughs) all right this this drink is the Mustang. It's actually pretty good. I would I would actually drink this again. For the record, it's it's a mint julep with lemon, lemon and and vodka, a vodka, yeah, lemon and vodka added to a mint julep. All
1: right, I I so. just it sounds fucking awful, but I it don't does. know
0: the proportions, so I'll need to see like how much so of lemon like, can you put in there. Imagine imagine you made a lemon drop, right? Okay, in in a cup, and then you added a mint julep on top of it without realizing what you were doing. That's what I did. You mixed a lemon drop jo- lemon drop, and a mint julep. Yes. Okay. Except for I also fucked up the lemon drop, <laughs> right? Or, well, no, I didn't. No, 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 So it is It is a lemon drop, not a lime drop. But yeah, that's basically what happened is my lemon drop and my mint julep ended up in the same glass.
1: I will let everybody know that Crossland initially also fucked up in that he thought that mint juleps had lime in it. Chapter 64, hail.
0: <laughs> we have to take a shot. I just Cheers. did. Oh. Oh, well, all right, fine. Cheers, my. I did while
1: you were complaining about how bad you are at making shots.
0: Ah, it's fair. Okay. Chapter 64, hail, like PJ said. And with that, the tension finally begins to wind down from the high moments of the beginning of this. We're, we're finally in the kind of falling action of the, of the plot. So... We get a moment of humor here in the next chapter where Severo for a moment is the butt end of a shit joke.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> it would have been
0: devastating. It would have been horrible. But
1: how fucking perfect would it have been if Severo actually died of a heart attack right
0: here? I think I would have been so mad. <laughs> <laughs> like ultimately... The fake death did kill you. And you died of a shit joke. Oh, no. <laughs> that also would have been terrible. If you, if you pull out the shit joke, if you pull out the like he shit himself when he died thing, I think it would have been better. I could have lived with it. Mm, but like no, the, not, the, not for Sephirot. But that, that also wouldn't be realistic. Yeah. Not oh, for God. That would have hurt. <laughs> that would have hurt. It hurts right now to think about. Fair enough. There's a tense moment here during the transition of power as they approach the senatorial chambers. The Praetorians guarding the center aren't sure if they should stand down or what to do. But Lysander reminds everyone to honor the Conqueror, holding the scepter with the heart of the obsidian that's, you know, stabbed through the top and kind of rotting on top of the the fucking scepter. By the way, it's so metal. Uh, (laughs) Crazy. Crazy. And she ends up walking her way into the senator room, talking everyone through what the process of power the transfer of power should be those who should vote i and kneel to the the rising and everything else and cassius and darrow are the first to kneel of course and then a majority of the senators kneel agreeing some abstain but nonetheless mustang our our leading lady is crowned the sovereign
1: i think of ev- literally everyone that we've met this entire trilogy i think I think she's the perfect person for this.
0: Yeah, uh, man, I think in a number of ways she's she's the perfect person, right? Like she's walking into this room with the head of Octavia, throws it down and is like, listen the fuck up there. It's and <laughs> just just puts everyone out, Makes sure that they understand that she's she is going to end up being in charge, but she's also the most responsible by far by far she's the most knowledgeable about like the position in power and part of that is the fact that she stuttered under she stuttered she studied under octavia and she kind of like learned power systems and the way that people react to things and i think she because of her beliefs and her morals inspired by the telemodicist she lines up more she understands how to use that power for a positive moral benefit for the benefit of all and believes in kind of the democracy side of society and color mm-hmm. and removing color. I, I think that the combination of the power learned from her father, Nero and Octavia mixed with the lessons of power mixed with the telemonic is, a great payoff here now that she is in charge. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I,
1: I, I just think that her, her strength and her, her ruthlessness when she has to be and her gentleness when she can be all kind of coalesce into the leader that you'd want during a new system of government. That's the other thing she's named after the fact that she likes, not that she likes horses that the first time Darrow saw her, she was
0: on a fucking horse. That's it. Yeah. That's the entire fucking thing. I mean, it's it's Darrow's internal monologue about her, right? Like, no, it's not like she monologues but, about but herself, and she's her like, "I am Mustang." Name that she's I, known by for the entire I think, society. I think. I think it's. Cl- I don't think. I don't think that's everyone true, calls her Mustang, Horse Girl, Horse Girl <laughs> Prime, <laughs> Horse Girl Prime. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It, fair, it, but like the power getting handed to her is fantastic. It's a great payoff of her character, without question. Mm-hmm. We we end hail with the chapter on the hanging of the jab, jackal, and it feels like from the first moment we kind of come full circle, right? The hanging that we experience in the beginning of Red Rising is Eo being hung ultimately for a decision under. Nero Nero is the one attending the funeral the the funeral the hanging the execution and here we see kind of the opposite perspective of Darrow and his new probably eventually wife the very least baby mama um (laughs) attending someone else in their extended family's funeral right and it just feels like this interesting Ouroboros moment there's so much gravity of course Mm -hmm. here on Mars there's not much gravity, so you have to pull the feet to break the neck. They let the loved ones do it. On Luna, there is even less. Fuck do those lines land. After you've like gone through the series in the beginning, the first book, it's referenced, I think, three or four times. For me, that is one of the clearest memories that I have of that first book is the, the whole idea of like hangings on Mars being far more brutal. Yeah. But the jackal dies as mustang twists his feet to break his neck showing him that he was loved even at the end after like waiting for a while though only only after darrow pushes her forward but i
1: think it's necessary i think i think she needs to yeah. show a little bit of ruthlessness right away
0: right i think that there's there's an interesting moment here right that happens between her and darrow with with the execution she i think personally would choose to pull his feet earlier. But she, as the sovereign, realizes that he has caused immense pain to millions and millions of people who died under the nuclear explosions of his decisions. And she she basically, like, she loves him still because a brother, a twin, and she doesn't pull his legs. But Darrow ultimately is also kind of a, a kindness in this moment because he's like, okay, we've witnessed enough of this i've been through this myself once i've watched my wife die i understand the pain you're going through yeah and you can go ahead this is this is a fine moment for you to do that i
1: think there's another way to look at it
0: as well and i think
1: that's entirely valid and true but i think at the same time as well after he's sitting there suffering choking to death she brings down the hammer she makes the final move
0: and executes him. By that you mean she was letting him suffer, and then Darrow. No, is basically no what, I'm sa- like, what
1: I'm saying is even even through the suffering, no. she is not letting him passively die. It can be
0: she is the executioner. Effectively, she's lopping off his head. If we look at a different form of right execution, I, I think
1: okay. I think there there is an equal amount of power
0: and compassion. In that Wait. Edit, action. To the other side. Yeah. Okay. Man, it's um, the Jackal is one of the to to do like our we'll do an amended this. But we have two more. We have two episodes. We're going to be talking about this entire series and we'll we'll get to reflect on characters and things like that more than our our usual postmortem. But just to give a quick postmortem to the Jackal from my perspective and then you give yours. The Jackal is one of truly the most evil characters. And you don't really fully understand that until the end of Morningstar reflecting back on all of the things he did in the other books he was still he was still evil he was still bad but morningstar paints him as truly malevolently evil for his own gain
1: um i don't know if i entirely agree with that because i i think morningstar gave him a reason it gave it gave structure his character in morningstar made more sense it was not senselessly evil like it was in the other books. It had direction and it had goals, whereas it, it, was, it was seemingly senseless evil in the first two books. It, it, he, he felt like a more fleshed out character with, while not right and not good, reason for his decisions
0: yeah he he definitely has an internal internal ethical system that he he kind of agrees with but mm-hmm. man ranking him as a villain though like where where do you went, where do you put he, him in your he head, went from it? chaotic evil
1: to lawful evil well in almost 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 almost
0: he's he's trying to execute a grand plan but he still kind of has a an element of role with the punches if you will mm-hmm. um that was my my clarification is strictly for celine, who i know will tear me tear me apart yeah if, uh, if I, I let I, that air, I, I without think
1: me. I think I could make a good given more time and given some some time to research it. I think I could make a good argument for him being ca- or uh, lawful evil. OK. All right. Well, and I mean, I, obviously, I, if if challenged, I'll I'm try. in on a video essay. If challenged, I'll try. If not, I'll leave it as I believe that that argument could be succinctly and properly made.
0: OK. Mm-hmm. But okay. regardless, evil dude. So, so think about him as a villain in the context of other villains. How do you feel? Where, where would you like throw him in your like villain list of evil? Like, who's worse he, than the Jackal? People that actually had power.
1: Oh. And yes, he 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 gained power. That's true.
0: I'm not just talking about this book series. I'm trying to extract it a little bit, like meta oh, talking. Thinking I know. about fiction. I know. Right. Think
1: of Sauron. Okay. M- way more f- fucking evil, and <laughs> way more powerful. Very
0: vader or palpatine even i think think are stronger villains oh man i i think i actually disagree with the palpatine vader take i feel like actually the jackal is is palpatine pushed a little bit further like palpatine started a war but he he didn't fucking nuke entire he like okay actually palpatine did commit genocide against the geonosians in the end yeah like, I I think I think the jackal has the potential to surpass anyone but I
1: I think he he gained a decent amount of evil cred
0: uh but was ultimately cut, cut short of his true pinnacle yeah. the jackal definitely lands in the top five villains for me there there are a few characters that are written so or like portrayed so convincingly evil- mm-hmm. and he is perfect he's he is he is really, vibrant really well done
1: i i would like to make an amendment i think the jackal is better written in a more fleshed out character even than palpatine or sauron or vader it's just a matter of scale of evil trying to trying to balance that out i i think the jackal is better written than any of them
0: yeah yeah Wait, i i agree with that i think that there's That's that's part of why I love the jackal so much is that you kind of get the full sense of being throughout three books. The first book, he's he's evil, but he's also like it's at a school and the school also kind of preaches evil things. And so that that checks out in the second book. He's not evil. He's disagreeable and clearly being strategic around different things until the very end And then it proves that he was a maniacal bastard in the third book, because he's gained power from the previous two books in his position, he is now able to fully reach out with all of his tendrils and control things and be evil in a real way. Yeah. And even
1: even thinking more on it, just because just because you went on a on a description of the jackal, I'm going to go ahead and (laughs) change the subject. Uh, I think I have to take Vader out of it he wasn't that evil
0: (laughs) yeah vader is that evil i I was trying to think about it and i was like i don't know i don't know vader i he's he's not as evil as the jackal vader vader is he has has an apologetic
1: streak streak streak, but but stretch even so his streak never mind this isn't about star wars
0: uh let's continue (laughs) (laughs) so chapter 65 the veil we get a lot of wrap-up information here. This is kind of the the summary chapter of the end of of everything. So, I I, I guess we're kind of kind of the language here is beautiful, but there's a lot of like glossing over that we're going to have to do because we can't talk about every single beautiful phrase, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think we can start off with, and the boy Severo thinks it's a mistake to let him live. What were his words? It's like leaving a pit viper egg under your seat. Sooner or later. It's going to hatch. That's Cassius, of course, speaking with Darrow, and that's what Cassius and Severo thinks about it relating to Darrow. But more importantly, what do you think about it? What do you think about the decision to leave Lysander alive? There, there's a quote about the the decision that Darrow
1: makes to like not do anything about it, saying, "I think it's a different world, and we should act like it." And uh. F- fuck that. This is exactly how he's been acting with fucking everybody. All book. He's been acting exactly like this and admittedly it's worked out for him, but I don't think it's a good decision. I don't think it makes sense to just trust the spawn of your sworn enemy who was until he realized too weak to fight three peerless Peerless scarred (laughs) was going to stand up and fight for his grandmother's life. Like, Mm-hmm. That doesn't give a good seed to grow from. Like, this is a pivotal moment in this kid's life. And uh, being captured by and taken control of by the people that murdered his grandmother and toppled society
0: as we know it eh, doesn't necessarily give a good impression. No, not at all. It, it, not only does it not give, a, a good impression but i i think it also places a lot of faith in cassius and so what i would say is that also not a good idea but i don't know i i think that it actually is a good idea it is i now, think that but i don't think it was before yes but we live in the now and dara makes decisions <laughs> in the now so that's that's where like i'm I'm settling this out i that's agree fair. with you on the side of like before like in golden sun there's no way you'd agree with cassius here i think but two. Chapter, i think three four whatever chapters ago technically 12 but what know. when when well, think it gets like when when they sat down and they had like the the scotch and they were watching the oh, whole of it that's well, that's what i'm calling that, that was idea. dumb
1: but it was dumb all the way up until the point where they decided to let cassius go
0: i i don't think it was actually dumb because it was it was strategic mm. the whole time Okay. I recommend I recommend rereading that hundred pages no, because it is so yeah. I will clearly but. telegraphed, um, but I I under I understand we're coming from. I kind of had a similar opinion on the first read through. Was like Cassius turning coat? Okay, checks out on on the side of the Bologna family murder thing. But like the rest of it, mm-hmm. is he really that like? What's What's interesting? Just to talk about it in post since we can now because we're we're done with the the book. Is looking back at that moment. Without knowing about the bologna cube of all the murders, right? Cassius is actually truly positive with Darrow. And he is, he's reflecting on those moments and being like, I miss that life. I miss those things. And so now, like... Yeah, he misses it. He misses those moments of brotherhood. He misses those moments with with Roke and everyone else. And he he's kind of reflective and internal. And he di- he didn't really have like a reason to fight for that, though, because it's like, yeah, well, I miss that. I mean, it's not perfect. Like you're still against a lot of the things that I believe in. And then he hands him the whole cube. And that's what converts him fully to go from, OK, you're against a lot of the things that i believe in but i i like you and i like the things that you stand for and i think that you're a good person to oh shit even the things that i believe in are bad
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so i think that the, that chapter in particular pays off a lot better on a reread but i totally to understand that. your doubt i'm I totally just get it. bitter you're bitter here especially because uh lysander is leaving with cassius yep, uh, yep. It, it is a whole thing and another moment from the first books, that first book that comes round, the friends who thought of each other as brothers during the Institute and before the first gold friend that Cassius made when he was invited out to Aegea to like go party and shit like that from Cassius turned into rivals after Darrow murdered his brother and that was exposed, turned into really bitter enemies at the scene at the gala when Darrow took his sword hand. It's kind of revenge, of course, that Darrow... Loses his sword to hand to Cassius. Mm-hmm. Part, part finally with understanding and a feeling of true brotherhood between the two of these people that have seen all ends of the spectrum of life together and truly have a unique perspective on the other person.
1: I, I don't know what to, what to add on to that. I think, um, I think it's a nice way to tie everything back together and allow them to kind of put things, put things behind them. A lot of their issues with each other were either born out of, well, no entirely. They were entirely born out of the society, which they've both effectively toppled. There's the killing of Julian, which was a, a literal function of the Institute that, that bred peerless scars peerless guard. And then there's just essentially the color trader aspect that doesn't exist if the society doesn't follow it. I don't know. I've had three shots and two beers in this recording alone. So
0: I, I think I'm a little bit slow in, uh, figuring out what's going on. No, I, I, I I think you're on to something. I I understand kind of the trepidation and I, it, it it makes sense to me to take a moment to reflect on these characters and the moments that they've experienced together and some of them being forced by society and some being forced by their differences in character and the pressures of society too. Like uh, I think there's a reality in which Cassius maybe understands because of the reality of the brutal brutality of the passage. That's not the one that we live in um but that's not taught to him and so because it's not taught to him he doesn't get it and so he Mm. goes out in the blood feud because that's what you do when your brother's killed by someone else like naturally um and that that just checks out so i i I track i think that like i mentioned before i couldn't talk about the brotherhood between cassius and uh and darrow but i choose that ahead of roke and slightly ahead of Sevro, it's it's narrow. Um, yeah, interesting, narrow, but but there, I take it, I yeah. take it, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, and then we learn a Mustang's test or her obstacles, of course, to to Darrow, and we get a final we get a conversation here about the lies that Darrow told and what she's gone through from her perspective. I, I really like this because I think the whole sexual tension of the first 300-ish pages of the book is really given a different weight here when she starts to recount the specifics of it all being broken down to lies and to Darrow being a liar for the early years of their lives to her and her needing to reclaim that trust from him and have an understanding of where he's coming from and making sure that he's the right person not only to lead the rebellion but to now as we know have a family mm-hmm. and so also didn't want to distract him with the family at the time and so there there are a lot of different elements playing here but ultimately the best earn of trust is without knowing will you behave to like save our lives to do the best thing that will ultimately interest your child without you knowing that you have a child Yeah. Okay. and mm-hmm. he chooses to without knowing it yeah of course he
1: does but uh uh it seems perfectly on brand with Mustang to to go about testing someone in this sort of long, drawn out, methodical way. But I, I feel like, and I was looking for it and I couldn't find it, but I feel like at one point, I want to say in the snow, Darrow mentions that he feels like Mustang is testing him or something. Something like that, and that gets paid off here. I might just be fucking wrong, but I feel like that was said or something
0: to that effect was said. Do you remember that at all? Hey there, this is Cross. I'm just popping back in to say that I got really frustrated and noticed that my external microphone on my laptop took over again. Since I have rectified this for all future episodes with a pretty quick fix, but for the little bit that's left here on the end, I sadly am going to sound like shit. We're going to do our best again to recover the audio, but Jesus, I'm sorry. Sorry. Oops. Yeah, I I do. <laughs> I do remember that. Um, I really can't remember where it is. It's it's definitely tucked within the ice sections, right? So, it, it is. If that is
1: the case, it's it's kind of cool to know that Darrow
0: saw it and cut onto it. Yeah, I used to think I used I used I used like a I New used. York car salesman. <laughs> We, we go into a quote here, of course. Darrow's internally monologuing. He's thinking about a lot of his life here in the last couple of chapters. But he, he says, I used to think... God damn it. <laughs> no. I used to think the life strands of my friends frayed right around me because mine was too strong. Now I realize that when we are wound together, we make something unbreakable. And it's it's so great in this moment because all of his friends, all of his family, Sophocles even, is on Earth and everyone's landed, and there's there's a surprise kind of teetering here on the edge of, of this moment. And uh hmm. that's interesting. It's different.
1: I think I think what this is really saying is that Earth is truly number one in the solar system. Is it and, though? Uh Anybody who shows up there is better than anybody else. Yeah, on other planets.
0: Okay, maybe, maybe.
1: I want to feel good about myself sometimes. Crossland, I live on Earth. That makes me better than
0: everyone on the other <laughs> planets and moons. That's that's fair. And finally, to end the story, Darrow meets his son Pax. Axe au of Lycos <laughs> <laughs> Oh man Would it be Andromedus Augustus or and the, Of Lycos
1: no, Of Lycos I don't think it has the same ring to it And he's gonna be Pretty small for a gold
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> His spermies are red what a what a good Presumably. end to the story though, right? Like Darrow has a son that's already over a year old at this point that like obviously he's missed like some formative moments, but he kind of stumbles into being a father, which is something that he yeah. always wanted.
1: It's true. It it was a pretty formidable, crushing moment when he realized that Eo was pregnant when she was executed. Yeah. It it brought up a lot of resentment for Eo.
0: Mm-hmm. because she didn't talk about
1: it at because all because she Never. didn't act more because she knew and didn't act more responsibly
0: yeah oh. it's it's tough for the for everyone yeah. involved mm-hmm. so from there we move from the end of the book into the epilogue Which and is the end of the book which is really at the end of the book. Let's let's be real. Why <laughs> why why is there separation here? Why why is this epilogue should be like teasing the next thing, you know? And it it kind of does, you know, but like it doesn't. Does
1: it? Mm, I don't know. I haven't read the next thing.
0: True, true. So at the end here, my people needed a sword, not a father. But now, for the first time in my life, I can be both. I think that that's a great moment of reflection for Darrow, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Like, like you mentioned before, this is one of the, one of the things he's always wanted to be as a father. And one of the, one of the driving forces in his, his early time after realizing that, that he was supposed to be one keeping him kind of going, I think it, it was a little bit crushing and introduced a little bit of despair but I think ultimately made him stronger.
0: It it did. It did. It was ultimately a, a big point for him, of course. What's going in the idea of like this massive loss going into the gala and deciding that he was going to bomb it and then changing his opinion within the gala itself is um, is a crazy revelation between the fact that EO had a kid and everything else. You know, it's just, duh. how do you deal with that? So the last chapter is mostly quotes that we're going to be talking about, but this war is not over. The sacrifices we made to take Luna will haunt our new world. I know that, but I'm no longer alone in the dark.
1: So given that context and the way that's written, do you think he's still in the dark and just not alone anymore? Or do you think it would have been better to write it something along the lines of my friends pulled me out of the dark? I think that this kind of implies that they're, they're all still in the dark quote unquote, but at least not alone.
0: Yes. Uh, Agreed with that final sentiment, right? Like they're, they're not alone and they're, they're facing a potentially dark
1: age. That's two books away.
0: We can't talk about that, that. but I, I think that it's interesting because I do think that it kind of precludes the fact that the future is maybe a bit grimmer than they thought but at the very least finally darrow has built trust and faith and in other people and has as well accepted the the trust of other people and accepted the loyalty of the people around him he's no longer questioning everything in the same way
1: i think i think you could also look at it a little bit differently which actually ties into another quote Um, that you have written down, but I'm going to use it against you a little bit. Sure. Um, I can be a builder, not just a destroyer. Eo and Fitchner saw that when I could not. So taking that and applying it to the sort of darkness thing, they are in a sense of unknowing. They are in a place where it is unclear how to move forward. But Darrow has the ability and the position to build the path ahead to forge to forge the the future
0: i i don't think that you you misplayed that at all um from my perspective i think that i agree with that i think that in the darkness he's now realized that it's not him alone and that he can forge a future that he can build a future and he doesn't need to break everything he he's Mm -hmm. broken the chains right he's broken the immediate chains and now it's not about breaking anymore. It's about it's about creating the next thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if, if this first trilogy is summed up, it's rebellion, and this paints the picture of the next trilogy being about what do you do after a rebellion? Right. Just a general concept. Like it's not speaking yeah. to exactly no, what it is, I, but like I it's don't painted. Have the <laughs> right. Of course, it's it's painted in this one line is like, what do you do after you've kind of created? like you you, you've broken yes but he's not just a breaker he is a builder he can be a builder so i I think that feeds back into the the thematic elements here and just like that the trilogy ends on a thematically similar moment of 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 course eo and a reflection on everyone that's lost and all the friends that darrow has and the idea of live for more and that's it man we uh yeah we did a fucking trilogy. We did 30 episodes plus like, wow. It's pretty, pretty cool.
1: Pretty cool, man.
0: It's, it's not so like witness this plot line. Um, I, I think that in place of predictions, I kind of want to just get your general feeling on the, we're going to talk about this over the next two weeks and we'll talk about the the next couple of weeks in a second here. But I think I want to hear just a quick thought on this book, the trilogy in general, how you feel, you know, being resubmerged in storytelling in a new way, book reading, everything like that. What, what are, what are your feelings at the end of all this?
1: Oh man. Um, that's hard to put into like a sentence.
0: It's not succinct for sure.
1: No, not at all. All the feelings are good. I, I feel like I wish I had even more time to sink into this. I'm having a blast I am having so much goddamn fun with these books crossland. you have no idea? Yes. Um. So like this is this is some genuine genuine enjoyment and uh stress genuine stress too, which I think makes it even <laughs> more fun. Um I'm really happy. Overall, I'm really really happy and I'm excited to keep reading. I think we talked about this a little bit today, but we are in sort of a unique position where we are intentionally giving ourselves cliffhangers and intentionally overanalyzing things that maybe don't need to be analyzed so much yep that i think like severo severo's death and then regeneration rebirth revival however you want to call it um i think had we not left a week and a half of me like between when i read the first chunk like read when he died To when I read when he got revived, there was a week and a half in there and there was a ton of examining what happened that I I felt like had that not been the case, it would have been a little bit underwhelming, honestly, because Hmm. it's really 10 pages, something like that. Yeah, maybe more, but not that much more between when he dies and when he comes back. Like, I, I feel like it would have been a little bit underwhelming and a little bit cheap. But the fact that you chose kind of the perfect spot to call it a week and then the fact that we do so much scrutiny, it, 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 it made the payoff really, really strong. That's so great. I, I'm, I'm curious what the average reader experiences in moments like that. Like, am I experiencing this in an artificial way? Is, the, is this the the typical experience of a reader? Or is is it kind of a byproduct of the fact that we do this, this format of a show? Yeah. Either way, I'm enjoying it and I, I don't want to change it. But I, I am curious what... I'm curious because of the fact that there are people that we know... And our friend, like, there are friends of ours that are reading this book, and I I kind of want to know what their experience is if it's any, any different in a significant way than what I experience because of just the format.
0: You know what? And I think that actually lends to a really good idea. I think that this is a good spot for us to maybe ask our first audience question. We've got three weeks basically before we start Iron Gold. And I think this is a good space for you to write us in at our email or Twitter or Instagram, whichever way you want to do it and send us something about how you experience the end of this trilogy. Tell us tell us about your experience with the end of the books. Tell us about the way that you reflect on the whole thing. Anything in that space.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we'll talk about it or, or yeah, or just comments on things that we've said in general. Yeah. Also that I'd love to hear that. Cause what do you think? Do you think that, what what was your experience the first time you read it?
0: Man, my experience, the first time that I went through this, I had obviously, because I've been through this a number of times, I'm picking up on some of kind of the, the subtextual things, like some of the poetry and, um, and some of the things that are broken down. The first time that I read through this though, I was pretty much entranced. I, I could not, um, stop in any context in any way one of our very close friends who recorded a, a final episode on our practice podcast um, Bill he read he listened to these books after I did and I think he had the same kind of experience where he raced through the, the original trilogy because there was, there was no other option it didn't feel like there was another way to do it And at times that was good, but at times you miss kind of some of a lot of the subtle work that Pierce Brown does to either lay the foundation for later choices or lay the foundation for some of these deep characters. And man, I can, I can tell you from my experience in um, reading fiction that there are few stories that are this good. And I kind of feel, it kind of feels sad to like sad quote to start on this for our podcast. That's going to be tackling fiction in general going forward. Um, after, you know, we finish, of course the Red rising, but like tackling series and books and stuff like that. But this is such a good benchmark to me- measure everything else against too, because this is top tier modern mm-hmm. fiction. Right. So I I'm, I'm both upset, not upset. I, I loved this book <laughs> series reading it the first time. And I think that there are a few things that match it. And also, man, I did not catch them so much shit as, as we did <laughs> reading through it slowly and kind of piecemealing it is a is a very different experience. And I'm happy you get to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Oh,
0: <laughs> there's a lot of feelings, man. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm excited. Anything else on uh, on this book? Uh, not at the moment. Fair, fair. So with that, let's talk about next week. So next week is going to be interesting, and maybe the rest of the month is the way to paint this, is going to be interesting. So next week, we are going to have one episode released with a guest, one of our friends, uh, Kyle L., who is a fellow newbie to the series, hasn't read the sequel trilogy at all. He's exactly where you and I are at right now in our read through. And it'll be good. We're going to reflect on Morningstar on the whole. Dream between the two of you and me about the future of where the series goes from here and some of the different things that are planted. Talk about favorite characters, things of that nature. Kyle is a photographer. He does a lot of work with Red Bull, as well as a number of very kind of extreme and incredible athletes inside of New York and around. He's a brilliant photographer. You can find him on Instagram. I'm sure he'll talk about it next week, but he is a super cool dude, dude. And also so smart. He's he's a Kurt Vonnegut fanatic and and a fiction and moral aficionado who has been a great, you know, a strange transfer of an early elementary school friend into late life. And uh, it's it's been interesting. But yeah we'll talk about it more. So, he's he's going to be our first uh, our first episode next week. Yes. Yes.
1: I'm looking forward to that. Following week, we'll have a short story episode like we've been doing in between books as well as an episode wrapping up the entire Red Rising trilogy with uh, some special guests Ben and Aaron from Howlerpod.
0: Yes, the original Howlers. Howler, they're, they're in the fucking board game, dude. Like they, they have their own card. Yeah. With, with Pierce Brown. Yeah. So there is a board game. I, I kept it away from you because there are some like kind of spoilers for the, the original trilogy, but literally they are a card with Pierce Brown. Like they're the Howler card. It's the two of them and Pierce Brown's face. It's that's so cool. So cool. They're, uh, they're great. I'm I'm actually like actively sad that I can't recommend their podcast to you, PJ, immediately because they talk through Iron Gold yet for most of their early episodes, which, you know, relates to obviously we're going to cover next. But honestly, I think they did a great job kind of exploring chapter by chapter with kind of a spoiler way where wherein we don't spoil the future. You know, it's it's, we're different that way. But I'm so excited to uh, to have them on the podcast it's it's gonna be a great time good good i'm you, really excited for it too you haven't heard them yet so it's uh, i haven't they, they're alright they're good you're I've going in a blind. little
1: bit of correspondence over instagram direct messages but mostly that's you talking to them and me kind of like hey i'm here too yeah. By reading the messages. So uh, that's been my interaction.
0: They're generally well lubricated during their podcast. So they're very Perfect. comfortable with uh, with our environment, which is wonderful. So it'll uh, it'll be a good time. Good to hear. Good to
1: hear. But now you guys all know the drill. This is where I'm going to talk about how you interact with us on the Internet. So obviously we've got a website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We are on social media on Twitter and Instagram at wordswhiskeypod. If you are listening to us on any sort of mobile or stationary device that connects to podcast ethers, uh, (laughs) you're welcome to leave a review if you are so inclined. But the biggest, best way to... Uh, kind of help us out is just word of mouth, letting letting people that you think would like us know about us. With that, I'm going to leave you for the week. We love you all, and any interaction that we might have with you in the future will be appreciated and reciprocated. So, uh, I'll kiss you on the mouth if you kiss me on the mouth. Vaccinated first. I am. Well, there you go. There we go. So
0: uh all right hail reaper see you next week omnisphere lupus